Hello and welcome to episode 403 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we're coming to you from separate locations this week. I'm in Seattle, Washington, home of the four-time WNBA champion Storm. And I'm coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of Super Bowl 48 champion Seattle Seahawks. It's the Alex Rodriguez edition of the Pelton cast, or probably Russell Wilson. <laughs> yeah, I was going to Sitting say, right there in front of us. That, it definitely better be the Russell Wilson edition of the podcast. Well, plenty of Seahawks news, and it feels like the, with the Super Bowl in the rearview mirror, the offseason is coming into view for the Seahawks. Obviously, they've already been busy preparing for the next season by hiring a head coach. They now have several coordinators and made a key decision on Thursday about Geno Smith. And here to help us at long last preview the Seahawks 2024 NFL offseason after joining us for not one but two emergency pods. Please welcome back to the pod, Ben Baldwin. Thanks for having me. I always love doing this episode, and I confess I'm a little bit nervous this time because I'm afraid that my over/under picks did not do well. So I'm well, I'm interested to see how that goes. Nervous. That's a that's a preview. If you're not I, aware, I, we're used to <laughs> failure here on the podcast in the city of Seattle, so don't be nervous. Yeah. I remember my Atlanta Falcons 2023 overlock and. That, that that's not going to start us off well. Once we get let, there. let me just tell you whether it's right or not. Not you argue that the process was right. Yes, yes. <laughs> that's all that matters. Uh-huh. Kevin they didn't even have care a starting quarterback, outcomes. but it was a good process. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe they will have a new starting quarterback next year. Uh, and I, I think I, that's I, where we should possible. start. Yeah. Well, if it's going to be Geno Smith. It's going to be via trade. Friday was the deadline for the Seahawks, uh, where, well, I guess not a deadline, but Friday was the date where Geno Smith's contract for 2024, his base salary was going to guarantee for injury previously that $12.7 million, or guarantee entirely previously that $12.7 was guaranteed only for injury. And my ESPN colleague Adam Schefter reported Thursday morning that the Seahawks will be keeping Geno Smith, have informed him they'll be keeping him past that date. Uh, this you know also the reporting was very clear that they didn't say that Geno Smith was going to be on the Seahawks in 2024 that he was going to be on the roster through tomorrow and not being waived and I guess that's the starting point is my what are the chances the Seahawks trade Geno Smith I did think the wording of Schefter's tweets was very interesting because I think the first one said like he'll be on the roster this week and then another one said even if the Seahawks are he it's a very attractive price for either the seahawks or a team that is interested in trading for the seahawks and you always have to wonder where this language is coming from and i think the most obvious explanation is that the seahawks are open to hearing what other people might want to uh offer for him whether or not they actually want to keep him like like there's no harm in hearing offers at this stage even if they're planning on moving forward with him at least in 2023 i personally would be pretty surprised if he was not the quarterback this coming season because i think part of the attractiveness of the seahawks job is that like they're pretty close to the playoffs they're a stable organization like especially comparing them to the commanders or some of these other teams that are making coaching hires and I, i guess it's not impossible but taking all that and then turning around and trading the starting quarterback right after completely overturning your staff i think would be a bit of a surprise to me yeah 
so what is the next deadline? There's another deadline, basically like a month until March, right? Where the Seahawks have this window. Can you explain what that means to me? Yeah, so March 18th is when he's due a $9.6 million roster bonus. And that, like his signing bonus, would accelerate to the cap entirely if you were to trade him. So if you're thinking about trading Geno Smith, it's probably got to be that by that point. And unless you convert that to, to salary or, or you know, change it some other way, push back that deadline, uh, once, once you get to that point, suddenly the cap hit is significant enough that it probably does not make sense to trade Geno Smith. And you'll recall that back in the bold predictions, way back in 20-23, when Carroll was the coach of the season. Wow. And Kevin DeBoer was the head coach of the Huskies, and everyone loved him. Ryan Grubb was the offensive coordinator of the Huskies. <laughs> Ryan Grubb was an offensive coordinator in Seattle. Some things haven't changed. Yeah. Uh, I, I introduced, I boldly predicted that the Seahawks would trade Geno Smith at that point under the logic, you know, kind of similar to what's been discussed here. The salary for Geno Smith is a starting quarterback, given what he's accomplished, the way he played in the second half of last season. It's a really good value at this point. I think especially if you're taking that on as another team that doesn't have to deal with, you know, the reason that the the amount that Geno Smith is actually going to get paid to play football in 2024 isn't that much for a starting quarterback is because he got paid a lot of money in 2023. And that was primarily in the form of a signing bonus. And that's just gradually going on the Seahawks cap. If you're another team, you just get him at that new 2024 money. It's an incredible value for you. So that's why he could potentially have trade value. Now, that was also in the context of me thinking that the combination of John Schneider and Pete Carroll might think that they could get good enough play out of Drew Locke, that this was a place to save money potentially with all the other money that's coming due on the roster, as we'll talk about in a bit. I think the fact, you know, I, I don't know that it, it, McDonald being a new coach necessarily affects it because, you know, one thing that's become increasingly clear is John Schneider has significantly more power, which is a normal amount of NFL power. He got a title boost uh, that was revealed uh, last week at some point to, uh, I believe, executive vice president in addition to GM. Like, it's possible if John Schneider believes that rebuilding is the correct course and Mike McDonald's willing to go along with it because he got the six-year contract that could last, you know, see him through an entire rebuild. Maybe that's the direction. But I don't think there's the same Pete Carroll-led impetus to maintain continuity on the defensive side with the expensive players there that I think could have been a factor in a Geno Smith trade. Absolutely. And and also some of the, I mean, we, we didn't see this necessarily play out, but a little bit of the Pete Carroll bravado about quarterbacks. Which that it was just that was deep down as something that was kind of core to Pete Carroll, seemingly a thinking that he can win without a superstar quarterback, that his system would help you win games. But to me, I was thinking about this. I saw I saw the post. It felt to me like it was language that was coming. The Seahawks made the decision or whatever. They probably made the decision before today, whatever. But they informed Geno Smith and then they turned around and talked to Adam Schefter. Like those two things yeah. happen pretty simultaneously. We also saw Gino's reaction to it like 10 minutes before the Adam Schefter tweet. So it's not like this was, I think they probably had some indications, but these two things happened very quickly. Gino being paid that money is good for Gino. The Seahawks obviously are open to a trade offer because almost every team is open to a trade offer for almost any player. And of course, they're willing to frame this as they're not going to hurt Geno's feelings at this point. He's not the type of quarterback that you say he's absolutely off the table. No question we would trade him, right? Like, I don't think they need to frame it in the media like that. Geno Smith has been through it. 
Geno Smith has had this whole long career to get to this point. He's going to be excited about being the starting quarterback in Seattle or probably somewhere else. The problem is you need somebody else to trade with. And you have to be able to find that value. And I think the Seahawks, at a price, are willing to trade Geno Smith. Because almost every team is willing to trade almost any player at a price. Right? There's almost no player in the NFL who is completely untradeable. So I did a little exercise of going through the any chance in hell teams trade partners for the Seahawks. You got I mean, out your Joe Cronin <laughs> notebook and wrote down all the potential trade offers like he did with Damian Lillard. Is that what he did? Joe Cronin did. wrote him out? He, he brought it out at the press conference. I'm glad you're doing this because I was just stopping to think like which teams would actually be interested in Geno Smith. And then I, I realized we did almost this exact same process last year when he would be potentially a free agent and trying to figure out which teams might be interested in him in the free agent market. I mean, so I'm honestly, interested to some see of those this teams list. Are the same. But so the teams that I came down to, these are any chance in hell teams, as far as I can tell, who don't have a young star quarterback, an entrenched quarterback, or a bunch of money tied up in somebody. So the teams are the Patriots, the Commanders, the Steelers, the Bears, the Vikings, the Falcons, the Broncos, or maybe the Titans is basically what I got to of somebody who Gino would immediately be the starter for that team. They would value having him on the roster in 2024. And when you go through those, and I pulled up the Ringer mock draft uh, that came out, I believe, yesterday, just to see who they had projected as starting quarterbacks. Because you look at the pool of players that are going to be quarterbacks that are going to be entering the league and probably are going to want starting jobs quickly. And that starts dropping off teams pretty quickly. The Patriots have the third pick in the draft. Uh, the Ringer has them taking Drake May with that third pick. Could you do both? Maybe, but that would be a lot of money to invest into quarterbacks when you're trying to overhaul a complete roster. Right. Who are the, the commanders taking if, if the Patriots are taking Drake May? <laughs> the commanders have the second pick in the draft, and in that mock, they're taking Jaden Daniels. Ah, uh, okay. So, Interesting. It, literally, it's quarterbacks one, two, three, and that's yep. three of the teams that are on this list. Yep. And, and then if the Bears take a quarterback, that's another team that's off the list, presumably because they trade for Justin Fields. Exactly. Yep. So the commanders have picked two. Jane Daniels in the mock. The chances of at least two of these three teams taking a quarterback are extraordinarily high. Oh, yeah, right? for sure. Then you have the Steelers, pick 20 in the draft, also have Kenny Pickett, also I believe in various odds-making websites, are more likely to have Justin Fields on their roster <laughs> than the Seahawks are, or than the Bears are. Yep. So seems like a very likely Justin Fields destination should the Bears draft Caleb Williams with the first pick in the draft. And and to me, that this is this is one of the ones that's in the maybe range. The Falcons have the eighth pick in the draft. In that mock, they have them taking the last quarterback who's taken the first round, J.J. McCarthy, with the eighth pick. I think they are also, there's one other quarterback who's out there, uh, or a couple of other quarterbacks who are out there. You have the Broncos, they have the 12th pick. The Broncos are not dancing with the Seahawks again. <laughs> There's just, I think no. you can just cross it off as far yeah. as quarterbacks go. The Titans have Will Levis. I think Will Levis is probably the quarterback of the future for the Titans. This is a territory where there's a maybe to me. So you come down to, basically, it's between the Vikings, the Falcons, maybe the Steelers. I would be pretty surprised. And then out there on the market, you have the current quarterback of the Broncos, Russell Wilson, and the current quarterback of the Vikings, Kirk Cousins, who those two quarterbacks are going to end up somewhere, right? What about the Raiders? Was that on your the, list? The, the Raiders are the only other option okay, that, yeah. that I went through. And they know Connell. I think they could also be a I think they could also be a Kirk Cousins destination, one of these players. So maybe you have three places 
that yeah. that could be interested in the Geno Smith trade. But then you also have all these quarterbacks. Michael Penix Jr. wasn't one of those players who's taken in the first round. There are other, you know, Bo Nix wasn't one of those players who's taken in the first round. There are other quarterbacks out there. And you have three, probably four quarterbacks who are almost certainly going to be taken with the first pick, plus two other quarterbacks that are out there. This is assuming Baker Mayfield goes back to Tampa Bay, which I'm expecting to happen. And I just don't know if there is a trade partner who's out there that is going to value Geno Smith at this contract in the same way that the Seahawks are going to value Geno Smith or be willing to give the Seahawks enough capital to make it worthwhile for them to start over. And I think if they do, they probably need to end up out of this draft with maybe one of those other quarterbacks or at the very least a quarterback in the J.J. McCarthy, Michael Penix territory. So Yeah, I think that sounds reasonable and it's, it is pretty similar to the conversation we had last year where like maybe if other teams really love Geno Smith, then he might have like waited until free agency started and got gotten a stronger offer, but maybe the interest just wasn't there, like perhaps some people expected based on his numbers from that season. No, I think there is possibly a stronger case for Geno Smith now because he's done it for two years. It you it's harder to write off as a one year fluke. I, did you mention the Giants in that list? The number to get off Daniel Jones is an obscene number. It's like $60 million. Okay, but just because you have Daniel Jones on the roster doesn't mean you have to let him play football. <laughs> I, it would be such... Like, I went and looked up the number for them to get off Daniel Jones, and it would be such a high number that okay. I would be shocked if if they would... I think they basically the amount they're paying Daniel Jones, they need to start him for one more year. I've got a high number. It's their number of losses last season. They're, they're making <laughs> offensive DVOA. I, my my big takeaway from that conversation, though, is I am hyped for Russell Wilson's comeback with the Vikings next year. Oh, it's I think he's amazing. a Falcon. I think Russell Wilson's a Falcon. I uh, think that, that Kirk sense. is going to stay in Minnesota. I think Kirk's going to stay in Minnesota. I think Russ ends up a Falcon. The <laughs> NFC South is just where these quarterbacks go. <laughs> I do think there's a scenario where like the price for Kirk Cousins is so high that you know, Geno Smith starts to look attractive relative to that to some team. But yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a musical chairs. And the the wild card here, you know, as soon as the Seahawks, as we've, we've alluded to, but not specifically said, hired Ryan Grubb as their offensive coordinator, people immediately begin to connect the dots to the possibility of them drafting Michael Penix Jr. I think that's another one where the offensive coordinator doesn't run the draft. Like, does Penix become more attractive given his experience in Grubb's scheme? I think so, but I don't know if it's night and day is a difference. But th- there's also the Seahawks hired J.J. McCarthy's defensive coordinator from a couple of years ago as well. So there are two quarterbacks that are out there that you can see ties. I, I don't know if they're going to be in J.J. McCarthy territory. I wouldn't be shocked if they kept Geno Smith and also drafted Michael Penix Jr. I think that is probably a more likely outcome than Michael Penix Jr. You don't need to turn over. He's a little bit older, but you don't need to turn over the roster to him right away in the same way that you do with those three quarterbacks that are at the top. Do we know his expected range of getting drafted referring to Penix? And I'm asking because at least the last time I checked, it seemed like a lot of people thought he was like a second rounder. But of course, the the CX don't have a second round pick. And it's not that they couldn't get one, but my sense so far is that a lot of the quarterbacks that they like if they're not going to spend a first round pick on a quarterback then a lot of the quarterbacks that they might be interested in will be gone by the time they actually pick again i get now the other possibility is them trading down if they feel like Penix could still be available later i think that that's something that would make a lot of sense but i 
yeah, I, I think he's a bit all over the map, I would say, as a prospect like, and definitely an eye of the beholder kind of prospect. 25 to 90 or something, I feel like Penix could be. Yeah, that's a big range, but consistent with the ranges we've seen of other quarterbacks in that kind of range where we really have no idea how far some of these guys are going to fall. Once you fall out of the very the very top, um, I, I think the Seahawks are much more likely to prioritize defense. And I think it would make sense to, for yep. them to prioritize defense because of yep. how bad the defense was last year. Right now, the offense is not the problem. They have to build long-term. But the the reality is they have a lot of free agent defenders, which we'll talk about in a second. They have a lot of players who are going to probably be gone from the roster, especially on the defensive side of the ball, that they need to replace. And they have the draft picks to be able to do that. So I I think as far as pressing needs go, they have to be thinking long-term as well. I feel like quarterback, should it be Geno Smith coming back, is just not the kind of pressing need. If he is this quarterback, he could be playing through the rest of this contract at a relatively similar level. And Geno Smith has proven to be, especially if there's a good defense, a playoff caliber quarterback. Yep. Do you, do you feel like there's... I mean, John Schneider always talks about drafting quarterbacks and just never drafts a single one of them since Russell Wilson. <laughs> Uh, was it, was Alex Magoo drafted? Was yeah, he, he was a seventh rounder, I think. Okay. <laughs> yeah. He was the one. I I do think there's an interesting element of, you know, the 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 Packers' philosophy with Jordan Love has been validated a little bit after this season. Of maybe the time to go looking for a quarterback is when you aren't desperate for a quarterback, and you know you can wait for someone to fall into your lap. And I I do think that's. A, a potential scenario. I don't think the Seahawks should be thinking solely in terms of needs. Like if the value is there and they believe in a quarterback, even if they also believe in Geno Smith, like Geno Smith is not going to be the quarterback of the Seahawks forever. We know that. So, you know, there, there is room for another quarterback to come in, you know, especially because you're not talking about investing a top five pick in that player. You're talking about at most investing the 16th pick right now, unless they trade up. All right. Should we talk about the coaches? Yeah. So we obviously have talked a lot about the Ryan Grubb possibility on last week's podcast. It, it did not come as a surprise to us. Although I would have said, I think when we recorded last week that I thought it was, you know, less than 50, 50 that Grubb, Grubb ended up as the offensive coordinator. Then you subsequently have him out in public referring to himself as Alabama's OC while speaking to people. Uh, Chip Kelly ends up going to Ohio State as offensive coordinator, much to our, our delight, taking him out of the mix for the Seahawks job. Our um, delight? You argued for Chip Kelly. <laughs> you I you go to Hawaii one time, and then all of a sudden you come back and you're like, who here could have supported Chip Kelly as offensive coordinator? <laughs> I argued for not certainty about offensive coordinator. That didn't mean I wanted Chip Kelly as offensive You loved Chip Kelly a week ago. Oh my God. <laughs> and lo and behold... Uh, is broken at wait I've forgotten what's the name of the the pub the the Seahawks Dino's pub? pub yeah Dino's okay I thought so is broken by patrons of that Ryan Grubb is the Seahawks new offensive coordinator uh, Tristan how hyped are you Oh I'm so hyped I can't believe we weren't able to you were literally like en route to Hawaii when this happened I was or something plane, yes I'm so <laughs> upset that we weren't able to record an emergency pod but the thing was you'd kind of talked me out of Ryan Grubb the day before and then I talked myself right back in because the people who believe in Ryan Grubb as offensive coordinator of the Seattle Seahawks is Mike McDonald is John Schneider 
And I trust their perspective about who should be offensive coordinator of the Seahawks more than I trust yours, ESPN's I, Kevin Pelton. Yeah, the point was not that I think Ryan Grubb should not be the Seahawks offensive coordinator. Was I excited when I heard this news? I absolutely was. The point is, we just shouldn't have much certainty about how good off any offensive coordinator is going to be, especially one who is not coached at all in the NFL. Ben, where are you at on this? Wait, no, I want to get out one point. I want to get out okay. one point here before okay. then. The thing that we know is that we saw the chart. It was, it was basically neutral scenarios. How often do teams pass around college football, right? And the Huskies were an extreme outlier as far as passing the ball. And that's what we need to know more about is the philosophy and how you approach offense more than anything else. Because again, some of the most success, basically all of the most successful offenses around the NFL were teams that passed the ball more often. And the Huskies ended up running the ball very well after that, but it was because of their ability to pass the ball, opening up that run game for them. Uh, so I think scheme-wise, and then also we talked about offensive line, which was people were like, well, it's not so easy to pass the ball as well when you don't have such an amazing offensive line, which nobody before Ryan Grubb and Kalen DeBoer took over the Washington Huskies was like, oh, this is an elite offensive line unit. And they're bringing that coach with them to the NFL in Scott Huff, which we'll get to in a second. It's just like, it's one of those things that every offensive line looks great when the scheme is right. And I, I don't think it's something that you would just say at carte blanche. The Huskies had this amazing offensive line. They had all of it all together. They had the scheme. They had the quarterback. They had the receivers, all of these different things. But I think you have to come back to the biggest difference between the two years. Michael Penix was a big one, but also the coaching staff was a huge difference between the Jimmy Lake season and the, the Kalen DeBoer and Ryan Grubb era. And the offense looked night and day in those two time periods. So I'm personally excited about it. Ben, sorry. Uh, I I should be the last person to weigh in here because uh, I my level of paying attention to college football in recent years just is not what it used to be. So if you guys are excited, then I, I'm happy to be excited too. I think the one, I do agree with Kevin's point that it's hard to know how an offensive coordinator in college will translate into the NFL. And that's why drilling really down into the minutia of coaching <laughs> Uh, coaching hiring uh, I was encouraged by I, I don't even know his name yet but the the passing game coordinator the hired from the Rams um, so they will have somebody on their offensive staff who has not only coached in the NFL but coached from the Rams and I think I know Shane the Shane Waldron era is kind of controversial but I thought he did a good job I was pretty high on him and like if the Seahawks can get at that level of coordinating again then I would be pretty happy so um I, I'm glad they're going back to the well of the stealing from Sean McVay's coaching tree. I was sitting next to a Bears fan watching the Super Bowl uh, outside at a bar on Sunday and and told him that uh, he should be excited about Shane yeah, being yeah. the, the Bears offensive quarter. So I, I agree with you on that. I mean, I, a few things. Number one, it's amusing that like in selling Ryan Grubb to Seahawks fans, all the local media, and then even to a degree, Mike McDonald had to be like, he doesn't pass the ball all the time, guys. They were just really good at passing. It's like, no, 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 we want the pass. Yeah, do that, do it. Pass the ball all the time. But but what was what was the motion percent? I didn't. I don't know if I looked at that. Husky off the charts. Yeah. No, I mean that's what else could you want? 
that's it. Really, what it comes down to between like the scheme matters, but the shit that matters is how often do you pass, how often do you use motion. There are all these things that give you an advantage in an in an NFL and in a football game in general, and you have the option to either use them or not. And some people, surprisingly, decide not to use the things that you get an advantage to win the game for. And Ryan Grubb uses those things. That's what we should know about him. Well, the other thing I would like to see is experience coaching against NFL caliber defenses. And, you know, we had a conversation about this on Discord where Zach Jabal, who's a bit of a skeptic of the hire, you know, pointed out, I, I was making the case that I'm not sure how big the gap is between offenses at the college level and the NFL now because so much of the spread concepts have come into the NFL game. And, you know, the biggest difference from a schematic standpoint often seems to be how much the quarterback is under center. Uh, which, you know, in the NF in college can occasionally be never was not the case for Ryan Grubb. But the vast majority of the time, Michael Penix Jr. was in shotgun, basically only in short yardage. Uh, did he run a lot under center, which, you know, does tend to be more conducive to successful play action. But the, the point that Zach made is, you know, college is a lot of one reads stuff, one, two reads. And, you know, kind of automatic keys that don't work as well against more exotic, more uh sophisticated more capable of disguising nfl defenses the other thing i would point out is one of the places that the huskies in particular had a lot of success the last few years is you know you will instantly see this in your mind's eye when i say it get to the line you know kind of uh play fake or something try to get the defense to commit see what they're running and then you look to the sideline and grub and kaylin DeBoer call in what the play is actually going to be based on what they're saying there's not time for that in the NFL. That That's not an NFL concept whatsoever. So there is going to be an adjustment. What I would say, I, I agree with your points about the use of motion and the willingness to pass the ball. To me, the most important thing that kind of oversits over all of those is just a willingness to learn and embrace the trends and, you know, not be flexible and not be rigid in what you're doing. And that is something that Mike McDonald did hire hi highlight in talking about Ryan Grubb. And I think is maybe more important than any of the specific schematic things. Yeah, hundred percent. It's going to be different. There's going to be time, but like if conceptually that's how you approach football, you're probably going to be successful. And he's been successful everywhere he's been. I also think it's telling about Ryan Grubb that Kalen DeBoer is considered the offensive coach. He handed off play calling duty to Ryan Grubb. This wasn't like Jed Fish, where Jed Fish is like, I call plays. That is what I do here, right? As the head coach. Ryan Grubb was calling those plays at UW. He has the experience doing that. He's not just a coordinator who's sitting under a successful offensive head coach in that way. Which also is something that separates him from, you know, Tanner Angstrand of the Lions was someone who was considered a strong candidate has not called plays at all. So did you see the play? I can't even remember seeing this live. Maybe it was the USC game where it was a flea flicker into a screen pass. <laughs> flea flicker into was that I feel like that was actually in one of the playoff games, wasn't it? Maybe it was. I was just like they're they're definitely like they were willing to dial up some shit. Oh yeah, in this in this offense and the pieces that he has coming in is it's an extraordinarily experienced quarterback, right? There was always the comparisons between Penix and Geno Smith for a long time. A very deep receiving core, uh, growing offensive line, right? Like there are a lot of pieces that Ryan Grubb is going to have available to him here, and I think that's part of the reason, aside from you know being able to stay in seattle or it seemed like he wanted to stay the infrastructure like this coaching staff they've brought a lot of pieces to seattle 
and have sold the Seahawks as a roster and an organization in general. And you see them kind of going out and plucking these folks that could have easily, whoop, Ben's gone, could have easily stayed where where they were beforehand, right? The Rams passing game coordinator. He has Puka, Puka Nakua down there, but it's like, this gives him an opportunity to coach under somebody else, right? To not just 100% be in Sean McVay's shadow. And the fact that he was willing to come to Seattle, I think, is a huge deal as part of this. You mentioned Scott Huff, uh, the offensive line coach for UW, who is also coming to the Seahawks with Ryan Grubb. I, I think fascinating to me because Scott Huff coached at UW under Chris Peterson, Jimmy Lake, and Kalen DeBoer. I think he was the only coach to be retained across all three of those coaching staffs and you know, getting a lot of different perspectives, but being respected by all of those groups was was headed to Alabama with Kalen DeBoer and with Ryan Grubb before Grubb decided to come to the Seahawks. So that, I, I do think, is a nice hire for the Seahawks as well. All right, let's talk about this Rams coach. The Seahawks have hired someone who has met Sean McVay. The, the linchpin <laughs> of the offseason. This, this is how deep we get. Where we're like, finally, now that Ryan, Mike McDonald, that's great. Jay Harbaugh, that's great. Here we go now. Now we're getting down to the real coaches. Well, I don't sadly have a lot of notes on the assistant special teams coordinator that they also announced on, <laughs> on Thursday. But uh, Mike Garofolo of NFL Network, the first to report that the Seahawks are hiring Rams pass game specialist Jake Peets as their pass game coordinator. Uh, Peets has spent time in both the NFL and college coaching ranks, including a year as the Panthers QB coach before spending 2021 as LSU's offensive coordinator under Ed Orgeron before Orgeron was fired. Not a great offensive season there. The uh, Tigers ranked 64th in offensive FBI that season, although I guess that's better than some of the uh, the the Chip Kelly seasons that you were lamenting possibly on. on, on He's also offensive. not the offensive coordinator. <laughs> For the Seahawks? There's, there's definitely, yes, there's a difference between those two things. True. Uh, then returned to the NFL afterwards with the Rams. He reunited with Sean McVay, who had previously worked with for one season in Washington when he was an offensive quality control coach. So... I, it'd be interesting. He, it does seem like a little bit of a lateral move to go from pass game specialist to pass game coordinator. I guess you do get coordinator in your title, but uh, it, it is notable for to make that move and, and to do it within division. The One of the reasons I'm talking myself into being excited about this is that McVay worked with him a long time ago and then went out and rehired him at the Rams. So hopefully that means McVay has a high opinion of him and Yes, and also that he is willing to move from the Rams to the Seahawks. So, heck yeah, hire from the Rams offensive coaching staff, and that's hopefully will little by little deplete them while uh, helping out the Seahawks a little bit. Uh, all right, well, let's turn to the defensive side of the ball. This has obviously gotten less attention because that's Mike McDonald's specialty. He said he's going to continue calling plays, but uh, the Seahawks do have now in a defensive coordinator as well, that being former Cowboys defensive line coach Aiden Durde, a native of Middlesex, England. Uh, Durde played in NFL Europe, began his coaching career in London before coming stateside in 2014 as the first British NFL coach. Uh, after spending some time in Dallas, he hooked up with Dan Quinn in Atlanta, then followed him back to the Cowboys as the defensive line coach. Their last, His last three seasons, uh, this will be his first opportunity as a coordinator. So, I, I'm not sure what uh, what this tells us, you know, what we know necessarily about someone who's been a position coach over a period of time, but certainly exciting for the Seahawks uh, fans in Great Britain. 
Yeah. And like we talked about a lot over the Pete Carroll years, it's, it's hard to know how important a defensive coordinator is if your head coach is a defensive minded coach. And we complained for a very long time about Pete Carroll defenses, switching coordinators a lot and always having the same problems. So I think over the years, we've kind of minimized the the importance of this role. So given all that, it's going to be hard to know exactly what his fingerprints are on this, uh, especially since Mike McDonald has never been a head coach before. Justin, you got anything here? Seems great to me. I don't know. I I feel like, <laughs> you know, the same as Ben. Don't have strong feelings about this particular I, hire, but I feel like the process made sense in this particular decision. The the most important question: Have has he given a press conference or anything? How strong does he have? Like a strong British accent that's going to be oh. fun to listen to. Oh yeah, yeah. People <laughs> okay. immediately pointed out because he was on Hard Knocks. I believe that must have been okay. when he was an intern for the Cowboys back Cowboys, in like, the twenty fourteen. Yeah. He also gave a press conference today. Yeah, he, okay. he did do a media tour today. Ryan Grubb also uh, did some interviews. So, yeah, it, it's out there. Okay, good. All right, well, now let's turn our attention back to the roster. Uh, the, the Seahawks do have one other key player with a, a big contract guarantee on Friday. That's Draymond Jones, last year's major free agency addition. Uh, $7 million of his $11 million base salary becomes guaranteed on Friday. We haven't heard any reporting there, but I think it would be pretty surprising if the Seahawks chose to move on from Jones after one year where he he wasn't the problem with the defensive line, I think it's safe to say. so Definitely not the problem, but I think he, the Seahawks probably did not get as much out of him as they were hoping when they made that splash signing, although that, that's probably not a reason to move on from him after one year, especially turning over the whole defensive coaching staff. Right. And and he ended up playing a lot of defensive end in in base situations instead of playing you know inside as I think the Seahawks projected initially after they made the trade for Leonard Williams and had the the Uchenna injury at edge that kind of depleted their depth there so a slightly different role than you know what you would likely expect from him this year. The Seahawks start the season the off season in effective ten million over the cap or over the cap dot com when you account for. And I'm not sure if that's factoring in kind of like the injury, but I think that includes the the, the bonus pool for the NFL draft. They're five yep. million over, uh, period. So some changes are coming, and there are certainly some places that they can save a lot of money. Uh, do we want to start by talking about it, kind of a general overview of the roster, or do we want to start by doing the percentage chances of returning for players? Let's do it as the general overview first. All right. Offensively, I feel like the Seahawks are largely in pretty good shape here. They've got, you know, we've talked about the quarterback position at length. That's going to be the the biggest question mark. Uh, they've got they've drafted running backs in the second round the last couple of years, so I certainly hope they're not planning to invest many more resources in that position. Wide receiver, they look pretty well set. See on Tyler Lockett if he's a part of this, and or if you're potentially looking for a third receiver at some point. Offensive line, they've got some free agents at guard, but again, the the major investment is there. It's defense where, you know, look, this this team has fallen short time and time again, and you know we'll see how much replacing Pete Carroll with Mike McDonald is a part of solving that. But presumably, he's also going to come in with some different ideas of who he wants on the roster. I think the one disappointing development, and not that it was anybody's fault last season, was that coming into the season we thought. We have two tackles that are very good on rookie contracts, and these are going to be the bookends for the last decade. And unfortunately, it it seems like Abe Lucas's knee just might not 
let him be that person. And I think that is on the offensive side of the ball. I, I, I agree that they're much more set on that side of the ball, but depending on Abe Lucas's health, then that tackle position might become an issue again, unfortunately, but on us on the outside, we don't really have any idea of what it's going to look like this coming season. Uh, That's a good point. He had, he had knee surgery a couple of weeks ago. I mean, I guess my hope would be that, you know, he was trying to cut through, whatever yep. it was over the course of the season and that surgery will clean it up. But uh, certainly never good news when you have to have knee surgery at, at that stage of your career. And then I guess, should we talk about Charles Cross? Cause I don't think we're his, he took the step forward that maybe you were hoping a second season. A development is not linear. I wouldn't say I'm down on him necessarily, but you were hoping that left tackle would maybe be more of a strength last season. Yeah, I think he, there are a lot of examples of left tackles that took huge step forward in their second season and cross definitely was not that, but I think um, like in, in the stuff I've seen, like for example, PFFs, Timo Riske has these metrics that um, like um, look at tackle grades adjusted for double teams and the defender that you're trying to block and everything. And he was, I think he was like slightly above average, which like for a second year tackle on a rookie contract, I think that's perfectly fine. And they they won't have to make a decision about the long term, their long term left tackle position and what they're going to do with them for a while. So I, at least in my mind, I'm thinking of that as set for another few years. And hopefully he will make this jump at some point. Uh, Tyler Lockett's contract. So Tyler Lockett being the most obvious player, DK Metcalf's entrenched, Jackson Smith and Jigba is just drafted. Tyler being the most obvious one, getting a little bit older to move on from. Could they basically, what could they save by even moving on from Tyler Lockett at this point? I think they restructured him last year, and it's it's considerably less than it would have been then. But it's still, uh, he's got a $27 million cap hit going into this season. And it would be, it's about $20 million in dead money. So it'd be about a $7.1 million difference. So it really wouldn't make sense. And Tyler Lockett. If you're talking at a $7 million difference, productivity may be down a little bit last year, but not enough to be willing to move on from him. So I think we'd have to assume that Tyler Lockett's coming back or the value that they'd get in a trade would have to be so exceedingly high to warrant that, that I just don't see it happening with a receiver like Tyler Lockett. So this is probably the offense. I mean, tight end is the the one interesting position because Will Disley is one of the more obvious potential uh, places for cap savings on the roster here. Uh, when you look at, they could save about seven million again by moving on from him, and just you know, as as versatile as Will Disley is, given the lack of receiving production from him, that's a place where I think you're going to have to save money. And then Noah Fant is a free agent and coming off a terrific season, and it'll be interesting to see how far the Seahawks are willing to extend to bring him back. But uh, yeah, defensively is is where you have the more substantial questions because you know the safety position you look at. Jamal Adams with a $27 million cap hit. Quandre Diggs with a $21 million cap hit. Uh, the youth that they've drafted on that that side of the ball. And then Leonard Williams and Bobby Wagner and Jordan Brooks, all as free agents. Uh, a lot of question marks. What direction would you like to see the Seahawks take on, on defense, Ben? Yeah, they're, they're going to have to make some cuts, I think, just because of the salary cap situation and the reality of like the, the aging curve of some of these players. So I think... Like it, it's probably time to move on from Bobby Wagner. Uh, it's probably time to move on from Jamal Adams, who I, I think, regardless of how you have felt about his play on the field since becoming a Seahawk, I don't think he really has an argument for justifying the cap hit that he has. 
And then, yeah, there's Leonard Williams, who was a great player, but are they going to franchise tag him? I guess I would be surprised if they did. And if not, then I don't know if they're going to be outbidding the other 31 teams on him. So hopefully they'll throw resources at the position in the draft because I think they are pretty set on the offensive side other than like interior interior offensive line or other positions that you can kind of get by without as much investment on. And yeah, they just, I think they have a lot of holes on defense. So hopefully they'll attack that in the draft and their draft picks will hit. It's not a lot of flexibility. I mean, the money to move on from obviously Bobby being a free agent, but the two safeties, Quandre Diggs and Jamal Adams, they're still having to eat a pretty huge amount of money to move on from either of those players, right? And, you know, for Jamal Adams, I think they saved $10 million. Jamal Adams, they only saved $6 million. Now, I think the one possibility with him is that he could be designated a post-June 1st cut, in which case yeah. it's $16.5 million. But the nature of that is, you know, I think one of the reasons to to, to not do that is, well, you're, you're not, you still have to pay the $10 million. You're just doing it in 2025. And the Seahawks, as much as they like to talk a good game about not pushing salary cap obligations in the future, did do a lot of that off se- last offseason. And now the bill is coming due. And I don't, I don't think it makes sense. Like last season, last offseason, the argument was, well, look, you know, you see what we were able to do last year in terms of getting back to the playoffs with Geno Smith as QB. We've got all these draft picks. We're right there as contenders. Like they can't sell that argument this year. They they don't necessarily need to rebuild, in my opinion, but they can't be approaching it as we're selling out for the 2024 season, especially with a first year head coach. How do they do that if if they can't approach it as selling out for the 2024 season? Doesn't that just mean bringing back those players, though? No, I think it means taking like eating the cap hit now so that the, there's no cap money whatsoever in 2025 in for for Adams in particular. And, and, and I mean, that could be a it's case just with so Falcons little well. savings for the money that you have to eat. But I mean, Jamal Adams has pretty like Ben made the no matter what you think of Jamal Adams play. Well, I, I do have some thoughts on Jamal Adams play <laughs> and I have some, a lot more thoughts on the safety market and Julian Love's contract. And yeah. they all indicate to me that Jamal Adams, the net of six million is not worth it, even before you set aside, you know, the the potential of pushing off the 2025 cap hit. Yeah, if they cut him now, they would save it it's six million this year, but they would save eighteen million in twenty twenty five. And I think that would probably be worth it. It's kind of just a brutal place to be in. I no, I just think they're they're in a really difficult spot with regards to needing to add talent. And then also having to try to get off, having to pay to get off these contracts. And that was the thing that I think the Seahawks have done a very good job this offseason. Obviously, none of these coaches, literally Ryan Grubbs never coached an NFL game. Mike McDonald's never head coached an NFL game. I think they have seemingly done everything right so far in this offseason, process-wise, without things we've seen. This is still a mess that John Schneider has kind of made on the defense. And it's it's surprising to me how... I, maybe we're scapegoating Pete Carroll for all of this, but and John Schneider wouldn't have made these decisions. I guess we'll find out. But the the situation that they are in defensively in particular, uh, the defense is both bad and expensive and not that young. <laughs> it's, it is a complicated place to be right now for them. And I do think it's, they're going to have to hit on some of these draft picks. They're going to need to be playing rookies next year. And uh, or or be running it back with players like Jamal Adams, 
and Quandre Diggs. It's a it's a difficult spot that they're in. And when I look at it, I went and looked at the Niners' salary cap situation after their loss in the Super Bowl, and the Niners kind of just have better players for cheaper across the board. They have almost no contract that looks like the Jamal Adams contract. And Jamal Adams has kind of just been this curse on the Seahawks since they made that trade that has affected them over and over and over again and hasn't helped them. And uh, it's going to lead to the Russell Wilson trade. <laughs> Somehow, some way, led to the Russell Wilson trade. But they, they are not in a good position right now. And it could make sense to just try to scrape it all off this year, help themselves out long-term, like eat eat the dead cap or whatever. But they're going to have to hit on a lot of draft picks and Mike McDonald is going to have to do an excellent job coaching next season. The other interesting comparison here is what they think of what the Rams did last year, because the Rams were in yeah. this position yep. a year ago and everyone was like, Oh, they're going to have a terrible season. Look at how youthful they are defensively around Aaron Donald. And look at the Seahawks do not have an Aaron Donald, unfortunately, but they were able to cobble together with a lot of young players and draft picks a competent enough defense to get back into the playoffs and to ultimately be better than the Seahawks last season. So it'll be interesting to see if they use that as a model. I, I let's go position by position, and you know, I can share a few more thoughts there. All right, percentage chances of returning as we always do, starting at quarterback with Geno Smith. Ben, ninety. Wow. 90%. I would thought I was going to be high by saying 80. I feel like I have to revise it to higher now. <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to also say 90%. I'll, I'll go closest to the pin with 85%, although you did make a pretty compelling argument that, that Geno Smith is going to be back earlier. Uh, Drew Locke, who is a free agent. Okay, now we're getting harder. Um... <laughs> <laughs> that was that was fast. Um, when the Seahawks traded for Drew Locke, it's not like during the press conference, it sounded like Pete Carroll was the one who like really believed in Drew Locke and oh, the Broncos had a four and one record when Drew Locke started and blah, blah, blah. So I'm not sure what this will look like afterwards, nor am I convinced that he showed enough during his play to command that much of a market. So maybe he'll be back. I'll say 50%. I really have no idea. I, I think there's no chance of Drew Lock coming back. I'm going to say 5% chance of Drew Lock coming back. I'll split the difference on this one and say 25% because I, I think there are scenarios where it's Geno and Drew Lock again as the Seahawks two quarterbacks, but uh, not not very likely. I right, actually, next... I also think Drew Lock has maybe improved some of his value as a backup quarterback. I agree. Like, I think he's probably in the top half of the league as far as backups go now. Yeah. And the Seahawks just don't have the money to pay that. Like if he's if he yeah, ends up fair. with a six million dollar contract or something, I wouldn't be shocked if he kind of enters that. He's won big games last year and played in big games, which a lot of backup quarterbacks have not. But this to me feels like it's going to be Geno and a draft pick. Tyler Lockett. We talked about his cap hit and how much money would be saved by moving on for him, which is not a lot so i'll say 70 percent. i think this i think this is also like 85 i'm probably a little closer to ben just because you know i don't and i i feel the same way about quandre Diggs. i don't think the issue here is that their production per se or their play it's more just like some sacrifices are going to need to be made at some point yeah. here so 
I'm going to say 60% here. I'm going to be lowest on this one. Noah Fant. Uh, Colby Parkinson's still on their roster, right? Correct. Yeah, so I would guess that they would have Parkinson and somebody who's very cheap and that someone oh, actually, is no, going to... Parkinson is a free agent as well. Oh, okay. So, so they have Disley, who's very expensive, and then the other two are free agents. I'm not going to say they have Disley, but... <laughs> yeah, uh, agreed. Had... I'll say, for fan, I'll say like 5%. Wow. I'm going to, I'm going to go 20% for fan. It's a little bit harder with the, with the unrestricted free agents and they have to basically, they have to value him more than anybody else values him. Yeah, but they already, I mean, you know, it's not like everyone tried to trade for Noah Fant in the same way as they, they had Russell Wilson and Fant happened to be one of the things Bronco, the Broncos had to trade, but you know, famously, it's been reported that Seahawks wanted to draft Fant before he went the pick ahead of them. And I think that was the year they traded down and took Rashad Penny, maybe. A, I forget the exact uh, timeline. No, I guess it had to be later than that. But they, they, you know, they wanted him in the draft. So I'm going to say like 40% and argue that wow. Fant or Lockett comes back. Okay. Leonard Williams. This is a really interesting one. If Pete Carroll is still there, maybe I would be higher just because well first they went out and got him and also it would would look really bad if they spent a second round pick on him and then he left for nothing but given that that's no longer true i think it's probably less likely so maybe like 33 percent i think this one's closer to like 15 percent. he's just gonna be so expensive and there really aren't a lot of places that the seahawks can add that kind of money on this defense yeah, I I think they were more okay with him being a rental than than Ben does. So I, I'm going to say 10%. Daryl Taylor, his uh, rookie contract, is up now a free agent. Wow, he's a free agent. Uh, can't imagine he would have much of a market, but at the same time, the Seahawks don't have a lot of money, and he hasn't uh, he has not been a consistent producer in Seattle. So I'll say I don't know 15%. I just don't think the Seahawks care about bringing him back, and he's not one of the guys. So I'm going to say 10%. I think you guys talked me down. I was at 20%, uh, but maybe I'll go 15 here, like Ben. Uh, Jordan Brooks. I'm guessing he will have a market, and if the Seahawks let him go, then their linebacker situation is just a disaster. And a lot of people have pointed out that, oh, the Ravens, have good linebackers and Jordan Brooks is like their only competent linebacker. So maybe Mike McDonald is going to want to keep him around, which I think is moderately convincing. So I'll say like two thirds, 67%. Wow. I think it's 50, 50 on Jordan Brooks. And it really just depends on what the market is, whether the Seahawks can afford him. I think Mike McDonald would be happy to have him back, but they just don't necessarily have the money to invest in Jordan Brooks. And also maybe Mike McDonald doesn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I guess he wasn't, you know, he wasn't defensive coordinator, obviously. This was before he went to Michigan, but uh, he must have been around still when they were evaluating Brooks, who famously yep. went just before Patrick Queen went to Baltimore. Uh, I'm going to say 65%. I'm in the same uh, ballpark as Ben here. Bobby Wagner. Love you, Bobby. It's been great, but it's probably time. So I'll say, I'll say 15% again. I, this is the only place that I'm radically different, and I think Bobby Wagner comes back on a cheap deal as 
just wanting to end his career here in Seattle. And I think it's like yeah. 80%. Oh wow, we are radically different. Huh? <laughs> uh, I I also am in the fifteen percent range. I mean, I I can buy wanting Wade Bobby to stick around as a veteran presence, but you got to think they're going to want to make some changes at the linebacker level. If Brooks is back, it, it's not going to be him. Um, and I I guess the question is how cheap Bobby Wagner is actually willing to play before it's like, well, what's even the point? So I'm I'm at fifteen percent as well. I bet uh, there's some team that will throw money at him just because of the name Bobby Wagner and all the tackles and stuff, but we'll see. Jamal Adams. I'll I'll say I was gonna say twenty percent. That sounds really low, but sure, let's let's go with that. I, I I don't think there's any way to justify keeping him on the roster at this point. I feel like Jamal Adams might come back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna put it at the fifty percent, splitting the difference. Wow, I I'm taking the Ben uh, picking the Chiefs in his prediction game for the Super Bowl approach <laughs> here and try to take all the money. I'm going one percent. I mean, there we, we haven't even talked about the the off field issues last year. Uh, you know, I think that those were a bit of a a black eye for the Seahawks, and you know, if it was borderline, that's gonna push them towards moving on. I, I actually think the Mike McDonald change means that he's more likely to come back. If, if he's somebody that Mike McDonald's looking at and just like, we can we can do something here. If he's excited about the option of coaching Jamal Adams and the other opportunity is basically eating, you know, whatever, 26 million in dead cap money. Like, I'd, I'd have no idea where they're going to find any money at this point. <laughs> it's like Will Disley or bust, but... <laughs> I think there is a chance that I actually think it is maybe more likely that Jamal Adams comes back than Quadre Diggs. Well, he's next up if we want to move on to that. Ben, are you thinking? Oh, okay. Quandre Diggs. Um, I think he's good. He does what safeties are supposed to do, which is take away the deep middle and the things that stick out about him that fans really don't like are like, missing tackles down the field. And I think a lot of that was a reflection of how bad Seattle's defense was, where if your free safety is trying to make tackles on running backs, 20 yards down the field or a wide receiver, because your other cornerbacks can't tackle or something, then yeah, your free safety is going to look bad, but that's not his primary job. And if your defense were better, he wouldn't be asked to be making these plays in the first place. So I, I think they, my guess is that they will get rid of Adams and keep Diggs because turning over two safeties would be hard. I think Quandre Diggs is still a pretty good player, so I would keep him around. So I'll say 85%, and I think this is our biggest difference is what they're going to do with these two safeties. Uh, give me 40% on Diggs. I'm the lowest here. I'm at 20%. Again, same logic as Lockett. I don't think it's any reflection of Diggs on is a player. It's, I mean, number one, the safety market. Like, yeah, yeah. he's not going out somewhere, even the 11 million, you know, difference. He's not going somewhere else and getting 11 million. So I think that there's a scenario where he renegotiates and comes back as a Seahawk on a smaller contract. But sometimes that's a little more painful to make that sacrifice with the team you have been on than another team. So I'm at 20% yep. here. Yep. All right, that brings us to 
what Ben was nervous about at the start of this. <laughs> Revisiting our over-under <laughs> picks for the 2023 NFL season. Did we do a winner on percentage chances for the Seahawks returning? Did we already do that? Yeah, we did it at the end of the I... offseason. Ben did win that, yes. Yeah. All right. All right, the Arizona Cardinals had a line of four and a half wins. Uh, we all took the under. They won four games. Oh. The Atlanta Falcons had a line of eight and a half wins. Tristan and I went under. Ben had the over line. <laughs> Good process. <laughs> how many How many did they end up winning? They won seven games. Okay, they got close, but... Yeah. I so the process was their schedule would be really easy. That part was true. Yep. But they also did not have a quarterback, and now Arthur Smith is gone. So probably not a good process there. <laughs> the Baltimore Ravens had a line of nine and a half. We all hit took the over. They of course won thirteen games. That was an easy victory. Buffalo had a line of ten and a half wins. We all took the over there. Had to sweat that one out for a long period of time had we known what our picks were. But uh, they did ultimately, with their late surge, get to 11 wins. We were all correct. Uh, Carolina, a line of seven and a half wins. What? Oh, because they play oh, in the God. eight. Yeah, all the NFC South teams had really high over-unders because the division is terrible. But, but yeah, they had won seven <laughs> games the year before and then added Bryce Young. Uh, that seven and a half line, they won two games. We all had the under here. Oh, thank God. We all agree. We all agree. You should maybe listen to us. The Chicago Bears... Had a line of seven and a half wins. We all took the under. I made this a lock. I was feeling terrific about this in November. It got a little dicier than I expected, but they ended up winning seven games and hitting. Have you the missed under. one yet? Have you and I missed one yet? Are we undefeated so far? Uh, we are undefeated so far. This wow. will continue for a while. <laughs> yeah, 32. 32 for 32. <laughs> the Cincinnati Bengals had a line of 11 and a half wins. We all liked the under here. With Joe Burrow's injury, they ended up winning nine games. Cleveland Browns. Shout out to Joe or er, uh, Jake Browning. Sorry. Oh, did <laughs> is wrong. Jake Browning a free agent? By the way, I assume he has to be, right? I don't think he's accrued enough service to be like a full free agent yet, though. I would, I would guess he's like exclusive rights or, or at best, restricted. So, looking at just a Jake Browning conversation for a second, Ben. Yeah, he's Looking at some of the rights. stats that you've posted about EPA, right? Yep. Jake Browning statistically was like the 12th best quarterback in the league last year or something like that. Yeah, I think... Do we feel like... It's very interesting because it raises the question, or at least to me, the, the primary question this raises is to what extent is Joe Burrow's production because he has absolutely incredible wide receivers and T Higgins and Jamar Chase and perhaps uh with Joe Callahan I think was the name of their um offensive coordinator who's now he now got hired to coach I, I can't keep all these <laughs> coaching hires the straight titans. but some other team oh yeah yeah the titans which I I think is a very interesting hire for them so it's Brian Callahan for the record oh oh sorry Brian a lot of Callahan's and I I thought it was it was very surprising that Jake Browning, as much as I loved him in University of Washington, it was an incredibly fun season. That season that John Ross had however many touchdowns and they scored that was the 70 points against Oregon season, right? Um I I did not think that 
like after all his shoulder injuries and his arm strength and everything that he was cut out to be an NFL quarterback. And I, I think clearly he is. He showed that he can play in this level. I, I think there's a question of whether that would translate outside of like the best receiver room in the NFL and whether we should revise our thoughts about Joe Burrow. But yeah, I, I think this is one of the most interesting parts of what happened this NFL season for me. It would be interesting if someone someone with a less settled quarterback position makes a, a run at him because that's that's what I was going to say. We talked about Kirk, Russ, Jameis, quarterbacks like that. That's kind of like the market, maybe Geno. Jake Browning, is he is yeah. he a Gardner Minshew? Gardner Minshew, I think, is also a free agent. Like having both of those two players out there on the market as like fringe, maybe you this could be your starter if you have a rookie quarterback type players. But Jake Browning's kind of <laughs> entered that territory. Drew Lock too. There are a lot of interesting quarterbacks out there. Yep. Would would you rather have Jake Browning for like six million dollars or Kyler Murray? Oh man. <laughs> Kyler Murray is he has a very, very large contract. The film people love him for reasons I don't fully understand. And his offensive production has never been like commiserate with like the his reputation and how much money he's getting paid now and everything. I think before so there, there's always like a reason you can talk yourself into the production not being there. Before he had Cliff Kingsbury as his offensive coordinator. Um thoughts with the Washington Commanders now. And now he's like this past season, he was coming off an ACL injury. So maybe he wasn't hundred percent, but if we go through another season with like middling production based on his contract and where the Cardinals are, and even with Josh jobs, like looking completely fine in that offense, I think it's hard to like make an argument that he's one of the top, like 10 quarterbacks in the NFL, which is where a lot of people put him. I think. Josh Dobbs also out there. Another interesting. Thing, right? <laughs> yep. I like the if the Jets went out and got Jake Browning. It was Browning, Aaron Rodgers and Browning's going to he's exclusive right, so he's going to make nothing next year. That's part of the appeal of Jake Browning. Is it's not even going to be six million. Great. All right. Okay. Who's next? All right. Cleveland, a line of nine and a half wins. Speaking of intriguing quarterbacks, Joe Flacco is out there. We all took the under on this one. They had an awesome defense and won 11 games. So the streak. Oh, uh, ends you here. said nine and a half, and I still thought we were right. <laughs> <laughs> they won a lot of games. Yeah. Uh, I think that was good process. You can't predict outlier good defense, and their offense was pretty terrible. So I'm patting ourselves on the back for that. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Dallas Cowboys had a line of 10 wins. We all liked the over here. Ben made this one of his locks. They won 12 games. We all hit again. Denver Broncos, a line of eight and a half wins. Tristan and I both liked the over. Ben had the under. Who knows if they had played Russell Wilson all season, how it would have worked out. But they ended up with eight wins here. Ben gets this one. Same, same pro- You said that was eight and a half? Yeah. And they went eight and nine. Yeah. <laughs> they like actively tried not to win that ninth game. That is, that is correct. Detroit uh, Lions had a line of nine and a half wins. I was in my lion, still in my lion skepticism phase. I took the under. Just that it had the over. Obviously, they won 12 games. Beat everyone but the Seahawks. Green Bay. Had a line of seven and a half wins after the wow. of Aaron Rodgers. We all like the over here. I made this one of my locks. And uh, this one didn't seem so hot in October, but a strong finish. They finished with nine wins, easily covered this one. 
Houston Texans, a line of six and a half wins. Ben and I went under here. Tristan went over. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know how our, if our process was sound. The other rookie quarterbacks didn't do too hot, but CJ Stroud, obviously terrific. They won 10 games, hit the over. It was clearly my knowledge of who Bobby Slowick was. <laughs> the Indianapolis Colts had a line of six and a half wins. Speaking of rookie quarterbacks, although it seems like forever ago that Anthony Richardson played football. Uh, we all took the under on six and a half wins. Wow. According to this, both Tristan and Ben took it as a lock. It seems like that can't possibly be true that you both had it as a lock. But uh, they won nine games and crushed this line. It's actually kind of fascinating because I feel like had Anthony Richardson not gotten hurt, they might have had been under. But because <laughs> it was, I mean, they they were 13th in offensive DVOA. And a lot of that has to go to Gardner Minshew. I mean... Richardson individually, I guess, was playing pretty well. I, I can't remember what the team's record was in the games that he started. I mean, they were two and two in the games he started. I think Minshew relieved in a considerable part of one of those, but it's not like they were off to a terrible start or something. All right, the Jacksonville Jaguars had a line of 10 wins. I had the under. Tristan and Ben had the over here. They finished nine and eight, so I take this one. Kansas City Chiefs had a line of 11 and a half wins. I took the under, Tristan and Ben <laughs> took the over. Uh, even though the Kansas City Chiefs are Super Bowl champions, they won 11 games during the regular season, so I got this one. Las Vegas Raiders, a line of six and a half wins. We all liked the over here. They won eight games. Los Angeles Chargers, nine and a half. We wow. all liked the over here. Wow. How young oh, no. and naive we once were. <laughs> but the LA Chargers, who went five and 12. The Los Angeles Rams had a line of six and a half wins. Tristan and I took the under on this one. <laughs> Even though I had previously boldly predicted they'd win the NFC West in 2023 before their offseason makeover, Ben did take the over, and wisely so, as they won 10 games. Miami Dolphins, a line of nine and a half wins. Uh, ben and I took the under on this one. Apparently, the, the statistical projections were not that high on, on Miami. Tristan took the over. They won 11 games. Minnesota Vikings, a line of eight and a half wins. Tristan took the over and made this one a lock. Ben so also took it over. Uh, <laughs> I had an under here. The most frustrating lock, right? <laughs> yeah. They were they were well on their way to hitting the over when Kirk Cousins uh, was injured, but finished with seven wins. New England Patriots. You argue the process was right. Good process. Every time we've been wrong, we've argued that. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm not so sure on the Chargers. Right. I'm not sure if the yeah. this is right on the Chargers. The New England Patriots, believe it or not, had a line of seven and a half wins, and I took the over on that one. <laughs> Tristan and Ben had the under. They went four and 13. New Orleans Saints had a line of nine and a half wins, and Tristan and I both went over on this one. Ben went under. They finished nine and eight. Speaking of lines that look preposterous in hindsight, the New York Giants, seven and a half wins. Uh, we all took the under here. They went six and 11. We all won New York jets in line of nine and a half wins. And we all <laughs> took the over on it. Oh no. Good process. How could we have yeah. known? No, so they went seven and 10 with Rogers getting hurt in the first series. <laughs> I mean, their defense was, was quite good. And Zach Wilson was Zach Wilson. Uh, Philadelphia Eagles, a line of 11 and a half wins. We all liked the under here. We weren't feeling so hot about it early. But as soon as Babyist Fantasy Genius yeah. jumped on the bandwagon, things went south in Philadelphia. 
Thank you, Drew Locke. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's Drew Locke's enduring contribution. Pittsburgh Steelers had a line of nine wins. Tristan and I took the over. Ben took the under. They went 10 and 7. And how did they win 10 games? <laughs> <laughs> that was the crazy. I was looking up all these teams where I was like, what pick do the Steelers have? And I was like, it must be like 12 or something. Yeah. I was like, oh, they made the playoffs? This year that happened? They, they beat the Seahawks to make the playoffs. A loser leaves town, basically. Uh, San Francisco 49ers had a line of 10 and a half wins. Somehow I was the only one that went over on this one. Wow. Uh, they won 12 games. Seattle Seahawks had a line of nine wins. I went under. <laughs> Tristan and Ben went over. And we have no action as they were the one and only push on the board this year. Fair enough. Tampa Bay Buccaneers, a line of six and a half wins. We all liked the over. Shouts to Baker Mayfield. They won nine games. Tennessee had a line of seven and a half wins. We all took the over, and Tristan wow. made this one a lock. <laughs> Defend your process here. I, I don't even know what. I mean, what was the line? Seven and a half? Yeah. I thought I mean, they would be one of those teams. Like, we all took the over on uh like the raiders or something right where yeah. you're just like they yeah. kind of just found their way to the over that's what i, I thought the titans would be i, if I you, didn't imagine if you thought the colts out. were going to be terrible and the texans to be terrible then maybe the there would have been enough wins there for the titans but it didn't turn out that way for them the washington commanders had a line of six and a half wins they did not find their way to the <laughs> over despite tristan and i both take it uh, ben wins this one as they went four and thirteen. So the final results here again. Remember, there's one push. So it was out of thirty-one. I had eighteen. Tristan had eighteen. Ben had eighteen. Okay. <laughs> Everybody wins. Everybody Will, hits. Paul did quite well. Ben did have the best return on if you had bet a hundred dollars on each or any any amount. Uh, ben brought made eight point four percent on his money. Tristan made seven point eight percent. I only made six point five percent. I think that's pretty good, even on a down year for us. Like we've done much better in the past. In our worst year, we're we're still making money, so we can keep doing this. And there were seventeen teams <laughs> on which all three of us agreed. We went twelve of seventeen on those ones. So I get. Did you listen back to this? Did you listen to I our didn't. process for the Raiders over? Okay, I'm I'm so curious. What might have possessed? Oh, I think us we think... Jimmy G. We all uh, love yeah, Jimmy that's G. That's a good point. <laughs> I I mean I it. I think it was just it was so low. People people were too down on them. Uh, our under our locks this year were not very strong. Ben went one of yeah. three on his locks. Tristan was over three on his locks. Over oh, three. I, Wait, I had which ones? The Vikings, the Colts. Again, I don't know for Titans. sure if I just and the <laughs> Titans. Man, I was two for two on my NFC North locks. So kudos to me on that one. Before you wrap this up, I want to talk Super Bowl for one second, because I think this affects the division that we're in. Uh, and Ben, you were watching the game on Sunday, right? Yep. What were your thoughts about Kyle Shanahan and some of the decision making that's happened in that game? Because I saw a lot of people being like, oh, players didn't know how the overtime rules would work. And to me, I see that and I'm like, it doesn't matter whether players knew how the overtime rules worked or not. They still kicked a field goal in the end. Like they would have lost either way. But 
some of Kyle Shanahan's decisions, like what were your thoughts go- going into that game uh, and as the game was unfolding about some of the decision-making? Yeah, I think, so before I criticize Shanahan, I do want to applaud him for going for, I think it was like a fourth and three in the red zone where a, a lot of times in the Monster. past he would have um, kicked a field goal there and he ended up going for it and that was one of their touchdowns. So personal growth, that's good. Or at least if you're a 49ers fan, but I think he's still he's still so conservative for somebody who's like they have a great offense. He's a great offensive play caller, and the example that comes to mind is how he managed the end of the first half, which reminded me so much of what he did at the end of the first half in the last Super Bowl against the Chiefs, which was like the Chiefs had the ball. I think there was like it was definitely under the two minute warning, maybe a minute left or something, and they the Chiefs ran a play, and, and the 49ers just did not call a timeout, and as a result, the 49ers didn't really have a chance to march down the field. And I don't know if this is like people say it's because he doesn't trust his quarterback, but I don't know if that's it because at least this year he's shown more willingness to pass the ball, go for it on fourth down, like put the ball in Brock Purdy's hands. I think he's just like really conservative. And, and I guess if like, if you're a head coach, it's just so easy to think about what could go wrong. Am am I going to regret what happens if I do this aggressive thing? And as a result, you just kind of default to what is more conservative. And I think that's his biggest weakness as a like game manager. Like he's a great coach. Their offense is great. Um, struggled a little bit more in the Super Bowl than I expected. Although I think Brock Purdy played perfectly adequately and is like, he's definitely the guy for them and is still making less than a million dollars, which is part of the reason why the 49ers cap situation looks so good relative to the Seahawks. Um, that was a very long answer that maybe partially answered your question. <laughs> Did you, when they, when the overtime, when the coin toss happened, Oh yeah. In that moment so, when they like to take the ball, were you just like, they screwed it up? No, I think it, like all these people have run their own calculations and simulations and everybody gets pretty close to 50%. And I tried to do it myself and I also got pretty close to 50%. And the assumption here is that there's two really good offenses playing each other. So I had originally done this after the, that like Bill's Chiefs 13 second game, um, which motivated the rules change to see, okay, if, if this rule were in place, what would be the optimal decision to want the ball first or second. And if you have two really good offenses or so first, if you have two bad offenses or average offenses, then you definitely want the ball first because the, the only time it's really beneficial to have the ball second is if both teams score a touchdown, because then you're going to be going for two to end the game. And there's not going to be a third possession. Whereas if both teams score a field goal or if both teams don't score at all, then you want to be the team that had the ball first because then you're going to get the ball in a third possession and can end the game. So the better the offenses are and the better your two-point conversion is, the more that would push you to have the ball second. So I can definitely see the argument for taking the ball second, but I don't think taking the ball first in and of itself is roast-worthy. I think it looked bad that it seemed like all these 49er players were talking about not knowing the rules, and I don't think it really reflects how they should be playing but it is like it is a little bit crazy that they didn't even know what the rules were and then were so willing to tell other people about this afterwards that's very strange do you think they should have gone for that fourth down given the rules that they should have gone for that fourth down instead of kicking the field goal i think 
you could definitely make the argument there and i'm guessing part of the reason they didn't was because like the play was great they had a wide open receiver in the end zone but they just could not block chris jones and maybe shanahan saw that it was like i'm i'm not risking my whole season on one play where my offensive line is having so much trouble and again this is very conservative thinking but this is like the the things that coaches talk themselves into i I think there's a very good argument that they should have gone for it there because the probability of holding the Chiefs to a field goal, I, I guess it's not zero, but the Chiefs are going to be very, very incentivized to not be settling for a field goal because they know that if they do kick a field goal, then the 49ers get the ball with sudden depth, which is not a situation they want. So how much do you trust your defense that is very tired at this point to stop Patrick Mahomes? Probably not a lot. So that maybe that should push you towards trying to score a touchdown. All right. Uh, I definitely felt like, in, in hindsight, the more that I've thought about the game, I felt like the best player on the field and the person who maybe even affected the game almost the most of anybody, obviously it's Mahomes, but like, Trent McDuffie oh, yeah, was, was awesome. yep. <laughs> so good in that game against them. And you talked about how the Niners struggled. Like, just Trent McDuffie shutting everything down in the plays that he made in the end zone, the the pass rush on the huge third down play at the end of the fourth quarter. Like, it was such a monster game from Trent McDuffie, which was pretty cool to see. And now the Niners, after winning, or after losing the Super Bowl, what they get is those extra games in the schedule. And I think, you know, the Seahawks, that third place schedule, their extra games are the Falcons, and then home against the Giants and home against the Broncos. And the Niners get the Cowboys, the Chiefs again, and the Buccaneers in those same three games. So it is very nice to have that third place schedule for Mike McDonald and the Seahawks going forward. Yeah, it's one of the ways that the NFL ensures parity. So as we record this, I am looking outside my window. There is snow still on the ground that fell wow. on Thursday morning in the Seattle area. But believe it or not, we are less than seven months away from recording a season preview pod with Ben. Obviously, plenty of offseason activity to go, and we'll see uh, which of the players we have forecast are going to be back or not back. That ends up being the case. But uh, Ben, thanks as always for joining us. Yep, glad we uh, finally fit this in a little bit after the season ended this time. <laughs> All right, with that in the books, time to get to the regular podcast. <laughs> How long was that in the books? Oh, it was, it was well over an hour. Close I to like, an hour it's 15. like, okay, now we pick back up with the toasts. <laughs> so we're trending towards the two and a half hour podcast here. But fortunately, it's not a lot of UW football news this week. There was, oh, the, I've got thoughts. Well, please don't. I just I have to give just, a few thoughts. Oh, you always have to give thoughts. There are oh, some transfers as well, aren't there? There are a few transfers. There are two transfers. The the okay. last two for now. Although UCLA, uh, the the thirty day window has opened up for the Bruins. There's some other movement. All right, toasts. We start with congratulations to Bobby Wagner, the NFL's 2020. Three Art Rooney Sportsmanship Award winner is named at last Thursday's NFL Honors. So uh, a terrific, terrific honor there for Bobby Wagner. Uh, congrats to former Seahawk Devin Hester, part of the 2024 Pro Football Hall of Fame class. Why are you just saying former Seahawk Devin Hester and not saying former Seahawk Dwight Freeney? <laughs> I, I, I gotta say, I missed that entirely. Wow. Only Devin Hester? I, I didn't even realize that Dwight Freeney was part of the class. Who played more games in a Seahawks uniform, Dwight Freeney or Devin Hester? Oh, it has to be Freeney. Did he play a full season? 
Uh, no, he didn't play a full season, but he played like a full chunk. He played four games. <laughs> yeah, a full chunk of games. Wait, am I wrong about this? I swear there were two Seahawk legends. Where's the freaking class? Why am I not finding this? I should Google that and it should just be right there. Although Devin Hester, I guess, wait, did he play, not play in the regular season in 2017, only in the playoffs? Yeah, it's Dwight Freeney was part of it. Okay. You had I me just, for a second there questioning. No, I mean, but, my, my, I wasn't saying that, like, you're wrong. I was saying that, like, I didn't even pay attention to it. You didn't even notice that there were two Seahawks legends I didn't. who were enshrined into the Hall of Fame. Well, Devin Hester played two games for the Seahawks, and yet still incredibly mem- more memorable tenure with the Seahawks because of the uh, the five returns for 194 yards. There was the touchdown called back, right, against Atlanta? Not a touchdown, I don't think. I think he got to, like, the four-yard line. Okay. So, shouts to Devin Hester and shouts also to Dwight Freedy. <sighs> They both had, you know, they both made some plays. I remember Dwight Freeney making some plays. Uh, Dwight Freeney recorded three sacks for the Seahawks. So in four games? Yeah. Like, literally right now, if if you told me Daryl Taylor or Dwight Freeney at were, this moment, I'd be like, were they on the, I don't know. So they were on the same team. Although it doesn't look like Freeney no, played in the playoffs that year. The season. They released Dwight Freeney. But they were on the team the same year. But Devin Hester wasn't oh, until after Dwight Freeney was gone. Yeah, I, I, I understand that. I'm just saying it was the same season. Okay. I know it's so hard. Well, you're making it seem like they that. were teammates, but if you're not on the team at the same time, two different times of the season doesn't make you teammates. Well, I said that Devin Hester played only in the playoffs, and Dwight Freeney played did not play in the playoffs. So by definition, they did not play together. There you go. All right, congrats to Storm Coach Noel Quinn in Canada, as well as Brazil Tournament MVP Ezzy Megbagor, Jade Melbourne, Sammy Whitcomb, and Lauren Jackson in Australia on earning spots in this summer's Olympic Games at the Olympic qualifying tournaments held last weekend. But sad news. Oh, no. LJ announced her retirement from the national team ahead of the Olympics, noting that she would finish her career playing in Brazil as part of the qualifying tournament after Australia won its lone major title there in the 2016 FIBA World Championships with Jackson Starry. She's retiring after the qualifying tournament? Decided not to to go with the team to Paris. But is willing to go to Brazil? I guess it is a shorter flight from Australia. I don't even know. Well, apparently they had a harrowing, uh, according to Sammy Wickham's social media, it was like a supposed to be a a 24-hour travel day back, and then it turned into a 36-hour or something like that. Oh, no. So, like, literally a full day of travel. So, I, I don't know. I think it was more just at this stage of her career and knowing how long she'd have to be, be away from her family with the Olympics. I think those were probably the factors. But uh, uh, still able to do it on her terms. And, look, we we thought Lauren went out with the national theme when they hosted the the World Cup a couple of years ago after in 2022, and uh, found new life, even she'll be back. She'll be back. Lauren Jackson's retired once, and she could do it again. There were three qualifying tournaments. Retired once, and she could do it again. There were three qualifying tournaments last weekend. Emma Mieseman, uh, who is not in the WNBA currently by her choice, uh, was the MVP in Belgium, where the USA played. Uh, but in two of the other three. The other two tournaments, it was a member of the 2023 Storm, was the MVP because Gabby Williams, now a free agent, uh, was the MVP of the tournament in Xi'an playing for France, which had already qualified as the host country. 
and think of the noodles. <laughs> yes. Also, congrats to Pac-12 Freshman of the Week, Jaden Glab, who opened her UW softball career with a home run in six RBI in the Puerto Vallarta College Challenge, earning all tournament team honors as the Huskies went three and one. There we go. Who was the one freshman? There was a freshman a couple of years ago. Who Olivia came Johnson. Just, was that Olivia Johnson who just monster in like the first three games or whatever? Yeah, and we were like, oh, this immediate superstar for the Huskies. And then, eh, you know, had a had a, a fine freshman season, but uh, was was in and out of the, the and I guess she started 47 games. So that was it. It, it was like Shane Spencer-like. We were so excited about it. Open the season seven for seven with three home runs, eight RBI, and seven walks, five intentional walks. So, yeah, the uh, the strong start does not always carry over, but it's a pretty good competition the Huskies played. We'll talk more about that later. But for now, it is time for us to begin our search for Seattle's best cookie. Without you, I just like you started this. I I get the notes and I see that I've been written out of the cookie search. I went there, I read for the part, I had the idea for it, and in the end, I watched it, and they were like, there's no part for Tristan anymore in the cookie search. Did did Costanza want to be cast as himself when they did the Seinfeld show on Seinfeld? Kramer. Oh, Kramer, okay, yeah. But Kramer didn't have the idea. So it's not exactly the same. So our, our first entrant here, and to me... Your first entrant. A this culminating... cannot be Seattle's best cookie. Well, we'll we'll have to discuss that. We're gonna have to have all sorts of pluralization and tenses and winners. <laughs> Is the cookie from Met Market, which I learned a little bit about the history of uh, reading up on this. Met Market grew out of the Queen Anne Thriftway originally. Okay, we ran into its current name in 2003, not long before they moved from their location. They were on the top of Queen Anne Hill oh. to their current location in ah. the former Larry's Market there on Mercer Street. Well, they're near where both of us were. That's not the only Met Market, but that's right. That's but like that's the, the flagship Met Market. Exactly. When when somebody says Met Market to you and me, that's what we see. I mean, now to me, I see the Fauntleroy Met Market because that is my my home Met Market. But uh, there are ten locations throughout the Seattle area. Of Met Market. The cookies history, according to their website, it all started when our founder Terry Helverson walked down a particular Manhattan street. The chocolate and butter rich aroma of cookies fresh from the oven wafted into the street, past a line of customers progressing towards its source. After tasting that cookie, Helverson decided that Metropolitan Market would sell a cookie of its own. One is good, no, even better than the <laughs> one he had that day. Inspiration may have come quickly. But perfecting the cookie was not to be rushed. Our bakery specialist at the time stepped up to the challenge of developing the recipe. And after countless test batches, they found the secret. More chocolate. Nearly half the total cookie weight is in chocolate. Is the final recipe boasts not just one, but two different types of calabella. I, I have no idea how to pronounce that word. Belgian-style chocolate in the mix. Toasted walnuts add complementary flavor and texture. Is just the sprinkle of fine French sea salt that's finished, finished on top before baking. And obviously, those tusted walnuts also render you, as someone who is unable, uh, allergic to tree nuts, unable to eat the cookie. Probably, probably allergic to tree nuts. I've you might want to get paperwork. You might want to get tested on this one. The Pelton cast has made me be tested for nut allergies once, and I'm not against doing it again. Uh, if also, I they have a secondary version. Not this isn't in fact factory for you, but for the allergic standpoint, they have a secondary version that is peanut butter. 
Are you? Oh, but but it still has the walnuts. I believe so. I'd have to double check on that. Hmm. Because I could eat the peanut butter one. All right. So tell me about the stupid cookie. So I'm already biased against it for what it's worth. When I was on dating apps, I had on my profile, uh, it's suggested by Mrs. Fantasy Genius, join me in my search for Seattle's best cookie because it was something that the problem cast did not yet. Are you kidding me? Right now with this, I'm like, it's time that we do the search for Seattle's best cookie. And you're like, I, don't, I think that's a pretty stupid idea. And then you're, <laughs> you're like, well, of course, on my dating apps, I said that I was searching for Seattle's best cookie. And I started the search without you. <laughs> I was gone like this, all week. This it was search has become a sham faster than any search we've done. <laughs> Before even, like, there are ones that never even really got off the ground, but somehow... <laughs> More the of a search has been ruined by you, good sir. More of a sham than our Seattle search for most Seattle person. That's so good. anyway, someday we're gonna we're gonna finish the search for Seattle's most Seattle person. I I think I'm vetoing the search for Seattle's most Seattle person. So I, you know, I uh, people often replied that Met Market was their favorite bookie uh, to this message. <sighs> and the type of people you were dating. <laughs> Well, well, my girlfriend was one of those people that I, said the Met Market. Yes, replied with with the cookie. Okay. Yes. So, be careful is what I'm saying. Here. <laughs> be careful. I had only had it once prior to you know this coming up, and I'd had it at a friend's house, and gotta say I was kind of unimpressed. Did you have it, it didn't, warm? I, I can't I think so because like they they went to the grocery store and brought back cookies so it had to be pretty warm the the my friend whose house was at like lives right down the street from the the Fauntleroy Met Market so you know it was like less than five minutes away but I don't remember it being particularly great but I had it last uh I guess this was yeah last last may i think was the the second time that i had it and at that point i my eyes were opened to okay. the beauty of the met market cookie so i think look there's going to be a lot of factors that we're going to encounter in our taxonomy of cookies as yeah. we do this search with an indeterminate end date i was thinking what do we think about do we have plans in april whole month it's free for me now uh are you are you are you, are you thinking thinking of maybe hold, saving a date april 19th uh is that the is the draft the 25th the draft is the 25th all right i'm just i'm throw, i haven't the, i haven't talked to anybody i haven't talked we can to save the date yeah i haven't i haven't gotten out my uh uh nautical hat for belltown yacht club but Feels like the place. Your finest know. nautical attire. All right. Well, we announced we announced last year really early. We announced we our live show in like January last year. It was a good idea. Our we booking people will be happy time. about that. The key factor to me for what makes a good cookie. Some people like the crunch, but at the risk of getting into your wet bread territory, mm-hmm. to me, a gooey cookie is by far the best. It's the gooey middle, of course. Crunchy on the outside. Crunchy around the edges because if it's too soft, it'll fall apart. That hurts the integrity of the cookie. But you want you want 
a little bit a little bit of crunch, a little bit of resistance in in uh, 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 the what would you call the outside of the cookie? The shell, the shell of the cookie. The exterior. The exterior. Okay, a little bit of of crunchy resistance in the exterior, and then tons of warm, gooey goodness on the inside. It's interesting because it reminds me a lot of the way Jordan McKay described good ribs to us when we were doing our ill-fated search for Seattle's best barbecue. What What's the difference, right? I mean, it's not like if one food is good one way, other foods are good that way as well. Uh, it's it's almost like donuts. Like to me, I had some punchkis, right? Because it was just Mardi Gras. And there was the gooey inside. I got cream cheese ones. There was the gooey inside, right? And I was like, this is beautiful. They're not, they weren't like insanely fresh, but they were still gooey on the inside. And I think that's what you need. Because Seattle's best cookie, in my opinion, can't only be good when it's warm. Because cookies have to be good. You could, it could be a cookie place that only has one good cookie, like Met Market, as far as I can tell, right? But you have to be able to let it transfer for a little bit. It can't be like it immediately loses its high-end quality right after it's warm, I don't think. But also right, well, warm and gooey is pretty nice. Let's detour into donuts for a second because I had fresh donuts two days in a row in Hawaii. Donuts every day. Not every day. You were but, on the uh, search for Hawaii's best donut. I, I think the... The listeners, act, Third Pelton Brothers, Zach Chappelle has come up a couple of times on this podcast already. Uh, did that uh, last year when he was in Hawaii during our search. Uh, I, I forget what island he was on, but uh, had had fresh donuts at the Sunrise Cafe that were kind of traditional and just like dipped in frosting that were quite delicious. Uh, and then the next day had freshly made malasadas oh, at yeah. Passion Bakery Cafe and in Kauai and uh that was that was just top notch i i've had many molasadas here and they're terrific we talked about last year that's kind of my favorite style of donut but having them like just made fresh incredible so anyways back to cookies yeah uh yeah the gooeyness is the key factor and i do not think you will find a gooier cookie than a fresh warm the cookie at my market I, it may be too gooey for your taste because it does crumble and fall apart pretty considerably because there's so much chocolate in there it's also going to be a very messy experience eating the cookie because of that but i i still think the ingredients are well proportioned to me it is up there with any cookie that i i have eaten in the city of seattle going into this search okay so i don't know what we do with it it, I think you raise a fair point that even though the the cookie is widely available, uh, you know it it doesn't suffer from the issue of of uh, what, what was Seattle's best donut? Uh-huh, flower box. Yeah, the fact that it's not available to those with certain food allergies does seem to potentially raise at least an asterisk here. Okay, well, it's good to start any search with an asterisk. <laughs> Uh, do you have a particular type of cookie you'd like us to try for next week's pod? Hello Robin would be pretty feasible, I suppose, for me at this point. I can go anywhere. I can get any cookie at any place. Okay. You want to do Hello Robin then? I'm totally down with Hello Robin. I'm also down to knock off a couple of them. All right. Well, we'll, we'll continue talking about it. But if, you, if you're eating along with us, which you obviously weren't able to do it this week is was sort of last minute, the decision to get the cookie. For me too. I didn't know. I just showed up for work one day 
Do you consider this work? <laughs> I guess you did just book the podcast, so you most, were most on weeks that. it is work. Oh wow! Uh, continuing on the food topic, Lil Woody's Seattle Burger Month continues this week with the Bremerton Burger from Connor Cronin of Darkolinos, featuring crispy copa, roasted shimeji mushrooms, Gruyere cheese, EXO sauce, garlic aioli, pickled red onions, and cilantro atop a traditional burger patty. Uh, per Connor Cronin, inspiration for this burger comes directly from my earliest memories growing up in Bremerton. Growing up on the Puget Sound, I'd spend plenty of time combing the beaches looking for agates and sand dollars, crabs and starfish. It's these smells and flavors that I wanted to incorporate into my burger, which is a spin on the classic and my favorite mushroom Swiss burger. I chose to utilize an XO sauce to achieve the incorporation of flavors from the sea. Traditionally, XO sauce is a very luxurious and expensive sauce to create, often utilizing dried scallops, shrimp and cured ham. My version omits the scallops and features prosciutto scraps from Darkolinos. While Bremerton is about as blue collar as they come, the natural beauty of the Puget Sound meeting the Olympic Mountains always struck me as an interesting contrast. That contrast is what I am trying to capture with my Bremerton burger. Simple, classic, blue collar, but elevated in execution and flavor, which is most definitely a main tenet of my approach to my cooking style in general. What'd you so, think? I haven't had it yet. Oh, I thought I thought you went and had it today. I had hoped to, but uh, time wise, it, it did not work. I ended up at Linda's Tavern for the first time in a very long time uh, wow. tonight instead. But uh, so I'll have that tomorrow and and post about it on Instagram. Linda's is right there. You kind of have to go. And they were able to get us in and out in time for the the movie we were going to Dune at, Dune One at the Egyptian. I was Dune, by the way. Should I watch that movie? I probably it's a it's a notable movie and the you know it's going to be all the talk with part two coming out soon but uh i i can't say you know you know sci-fi epics that aren't star wars aren't really my favorite <laughs> fair enough uh i i have watched so many bad movies in these last couple of months i've watched uh national lampoon's van wilder click starring adam sandler oh my god what was the worst oh couples retreat that was definitely the worst movie that i've watched uh, and even then, after all of those things, I still couldn't make it through Asteroid City. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's your review. Uh, well, stay tuned for our uh, our Academy Awards pod coming soon. <laughs> but now, instead, we turn our attention to Coach's Corner. Yeah, we were back for the first time. I will say that this week of coaching, I was called both not the best coach in the world, third best coach in the world, and the worst coach in the world by different people. That was even earlier today that I was called the worst coach in the world by not my child, <laughs> by a different child. Uh, Search for Seattle's worst coach. Done to that kid. They found him. It wasn't a search for Seattle's best coach. It was a search for the third best coach. I guess I was of the coaches named. I'll, I'll have you guess who they were in a second, but I, they were none of them were from Seattle, as you can imagine. Uh, so we got back at it, right? We had a week off, you know, and I was kind of bummed about not coaching for a week because it's nice every Saturday having that as like Saturday morning. You wake up, go coach basketball. It's a little bit of like, I like coaching basketball and it's fun, but at the same time, you kind of have like church vibes to it where you're like, when that's done, now I can get on with my weekend. But so to have it back, 9.15 a.m., we're in there. My team is showing up and 
the other team, I'm like, there might not be another team, which I would be very annoyed about if we showed up and weren't able to play a game. Trickling in, they had five players, the other team that we were playing. So um, my team is on the floor. They they had no substitutions, which for me, honestly, you give me the five right players. That's who I want out there. Right. But we we start this game and we are just I'm like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna run this game. We've got this, right? Watching them warm up, I'm like, we're good. And we can't hit anything in this game in the first half. Nobody is rebounding. I'm sitting there. This is actually the most frustrated that I was with the team. I seem like like outwardly, like I'm going to be getting angry at the games. And and secretly, I am just sitting there. I, it's all on the inside if I'm getting upset. I'm sitting there. I'm positive, right? One kid made a basket who hasn't scored all year, and I jumped out of my seat excited for him. I'm nothing but excited and positive for the kids. But on the inside... I believe the expression not- is... Pumped and jacked is a win forever style coach. Oh, I was pumped. I was pumped and jacked. Yo, when Harold scored, I jumped out of my seat. I fist pumped. I was so hyped. We were all excited for Harold to score that basket. But the other team is just like hitting all this nonsense. We're not rebounding. We're not defending. Nothing is going in. And I'm, you know, they're not keeping score, but I can tell that we're down by a pretty significant margin. And I'm so frustrated. And our best player is leaving at halftime. It happens. It doesn't happen to some of the other best coaches in the world. Birthday party? Kind of happened to a brother's basketball game in Tacoma. Wow. Wow. That's a, that's a bummer to lose out to your, a different basketball game. He's in like select basketball. Like he's playing, playing good basketball in a tournament. So he's leaving at halftime and I'm like, okay, we got to maximize, we got to maximize everything we're doing in the first half while he's there. We have to get a big lead while he's there. We go into halftime. It is just, it is miserable. Right. We're down probably, I don't know, something like 12 points, which for first graders is an almost insurmountable lead. Third quarter starts. I've got like a pretty good defensive lineup out there. And I'm like, I feel I feel good about this lineup. I've dialed up. Everybody has to play basically the equal amount of time. But if you don't have a full set of kids, then some players can play multiple quarters. And so I was like, I, I had it set up so that Mateo was playing three quarters. He was playing both the third and the fourth quarter. And third quarter starts, and I noticed something. I, I, it was hard to tell. You kind of have to feel out the other teams, right? We don't have extensive scouting reports. So far, I have not Connor Stallion sat in the crowd, watched any of their games, videotaped them. <laughs> if but, you got on the other sideline, I'd be really impressed. I, I noticed that there was one kid who wasn't really defending. He was kind of just standing there. And in fact, we practiced this earlier today in practice. I was like, we had nine kids. And I was like, instead of having an adult fill in or like Luca fill in as the 10th kid, I was like, we're playing five on four because almost every week we play five on four in some situation. And we have to be able to find the open man. Uh, the, the team with four beat the team with five in practice. So that's kind of where we're at right now in our ability to find the open man. But so I see that this one kid is just like not defending. It's fine. And he's Mateo is the one who he's playing against. And so I like sometimes I pull kids over during the game because I'm like, whatever, they can miss a 30 seconds of a defensive possession. And I'm like, Mateo, come here. I'm like, this kid who's defending you is not, he's just standing there. I'm like, every time you get the ball, drive to the hoop and score. I'm like, just get to, because he's pretty good at scoring if there's no defense at all. Any amount of defense, he's much worse. He's a first grader. But if there's no defense at all, he usually can make shots. I tell him that. Do you know what happens after that? I mean, I sort of do because I've seen it on social media. We go on a 16-0 run. Completely turn the game around. Look, maybe they were exhausted because there were only five of them. I don't know. But like, 
it, it was it was such an incredible turnaround. People were so excited after that happened. I'm I'm just like I freaking dialed it up here, dialed up everything perfectly. Uh, we end up hanging on to win the game. I was so hyped. It was funny before the third quarter. The other coach only has five kids. Like my kids are just like standing at center court or whatever, just waiting for the other team. And the other coach is talking to his kids for like literally like three minutes or something, which is a long period of time when first graders are standing on the court. And I'm just like, how much coaching are you doing right now for these first graders? It's also a long me, period of time when the game is 60 minutes long. The notes that I gave, no, I think they're eight minute quarters. I think they're 32 minutes long. But I'm saying like the whole game is over within a 60 minute span. Oh it's yeah. Like, you you just... send that to the Super Bowl. It's like Kyle Shanahan talking on the, on the field to his team for like an hour. <laughs> no, it really was. And I'm just standing and waiting. I'm looking at the reps being like, are we going to start? Like, does anybody notice that this is first grade basketball right now? The idea that there is a coach out there who is more intense than me about in-game coaching was a shocking experience. So that, that also made me feel a little bit better about holding on to win the game. After the game, Mateo got his Wilt Chamberlain. Uh, he scored 12 total points, which for first grade basketball is like easily 80. So he got his hand drawn 12. Who, uh, who wrote the 12? That was me. Okay. <laughs> I like that it could have e either been him or me and you wouldn't have known. I I didn't think it was him. I thought it could have been Luca. Uh, so after the game, I got the title of not first, not second, third best coach in the world. Thank you. Would you like to guess who number one and two are? So this is from Mateo? Yes, of course. So obviously the answers are Nick Sirianni yes. and and I didn't realize that Philly had the Knicks. So Nick Nurse? Nope, not Nick Nurse. Kirby Indy Smart. Kirby Smart is oh, number two. Of course. All right. <laughs> when you think of the three great coaches in the world, <laughs> Nick Sirianni, Kirby Smart, and me. A really Italian-heavy list. I guess so, yeah. I don't think Kirby Smart. Yeah, oh, something tells me he's not. I get the feeling even, even our grandparents question, I don't think questionable I, things about the country of Italy. I, I would <laughs> I would not impugn Kirby Smart in that way. <laughs> I just feel like he's about the furthest thing from Italian. So that was pretty nice. And then at practice earlier today, uh, there was one kid who kept like stealing the ball and stuff. And I'm like, I'm like, these are not my rules. I was talking to him, and he was like, "You're the worst coach ever." And I was like, "I'm just trying to be clear. I don't make these rules. I am just trying to enforce them." So that when you play in the game, you don't get stopped or kicked out of the game. That's it. So he, he pushed me and called me the worst coach ever. And I was oh, like, wow. I've was... been through parenting Mateo. I can handle anything. He was Travis Kelsey to your Andy Reid. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hopefully it ends as well. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. He like missed a shot in practice and just like collapsed to the ground out of anguish. And I started laughing because it's funny. <laughs> and he did not like that at all. Weird. But I was like, I've parented Mateo for seven years or however old he is. I can handle anything, dog. <laughs> I've risen up the ranks to third best coach for him. Uh, he's He gave me many Phil Philadelphia greetings. We're good. All right. Well, let's get into Seattle sports. Spring training is here. Julio is long tossing with Ichiro in a 
meeting of Seattle legends that you just love to see uh, in training, in spring training with the Mariners. Outfielder Kanan Smith and Jigba, brother oh. of Seahawks receiver Jackson, who they claimed off waivers from the Pirates last week. Smith and Jigba played 18 games for Pittsburgh over the last two seasons. They just won 35 and 37 at-bats, but he hit 280 with 15 homers and 21 stolen bases in 105 games at AAA Indianapolis last season. Posted a 366 on base percentage, 473 slugging. He'll turn 25 in April and has one option remaining. Seems like a worthwhile pickup. Also, he's training down at driveline with Ty France. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Have you full... seen that at all? Ty France is putting in work. I've, I I heard it alluded to enough on on the Discord that I think I put that together. Uh, the full fan graphs projections are out with the start of spring training. They have the Mariners projected for an average of 85 wins, a 59% chance to make the playoffs. Are you aware that Gregory Santos is hurt already? I It doesn't seem like it's a big deal, does it? It's just still, it's really, can we just not? I mean, sure. Uh, Mariners ahead of the defending champion Rangers in those projections projected for just 81.5 wins on average, a 36% chance to make the playoffs. AL West averages 0.8 wildcard spots with the depth of the AL East. But from that AL East, only the Yankees and the Rays make the playoffs in a higher percentage of simulations than the Mariners do. Wow. So Astros in the in the West, and I think the Twins still do in the Central. Maybe the so, Guardians have them. I think this might be shaping up as possibly, I don't want to get ahead of myself, maybe this will be one of the most devastating seasons to be a Mariners fan. Because oh, no. I'll tell you, those fan graph odds, when they look good, when they look good, things do not go well. When, when, when fan graphs goes high, we go low? Yeah. Oh, well, we will continue to monitor that throughout spring training uh, as as we near the 2024 MLB season. Uh, the Kraken lost their first two games of their road trip coming out of the All-Star break before getting a 2-1 shootout win Tuesday against the Islanders. They then wrapped up their East Coast swing Thursday in Boston with a 4-1 win, getting a goal and two assists from Matty Beneers. Uh, back home, I think. I think he's from Boston, right? They start a six-game homestand with a President's Day matinee against the Red Wings that will air on ESPN on Monday. The Seattle Sounders are now Renton's own. They inaugurated as ho- their... hockey's the only sport that's like we have to claim President's Day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> NFL is like we got Thanksgiving. NBA is like Christmas. NFL is taking that also. College football is like New Year's Day, and hockey's like you know what. President's Day is all ours. NBA used to have MLK Day, but uh, NFL took that one as well. NFL uh, just they, took, they took everything. They're like, you, you can't even have this, NFL. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to add one more playoff week. And all of a sudden, they're going to be like, yeah, President's Day. Headlining the President's Day slate of NFL games. <laughs> to two-day Super Bowl? Yeah, two-day Super Bowl. Day two is uh, <laughs> the second overtime they play on President's Day. Uh, but the NBA does not play at all on President's Day because it's traditionally the day after the All-Star game. Uh, the Sounders inaugurated their new rent and practice facility at the former site of Long Acres on Tuesday. Uh, before coming home, they lost their final friendly in Marbella 5-1 over 180 minutes. So two 90-minute matches with different uh, with rotating between to Danish side OB. They will wrap up the preseason by hosting a matchup against the Sacramento Republic of the USL Championship on Saturday. And the good news on Wednesday is cornerback centerback Jackson Reagan returned to training for the first time since discovering a knee injury at the U.S. men's national team camp a month ago. 
Seattle Rain opened their preseason last Friday by traveling to Costa Rica and beating the Costa Rican women's national team, the Ticas, for nothing. I be a professional. I should stop looking like a professional soccer player and just be a professional soccer player. Because I'm nowhere. I'm in Seattle, Washington, where it snowed. That's true. I'm not in Costa Rica at all. Not even a little bit. Did uh, you, you actually had snow at your house? Because we didn't have any. Oh, yeah. Like a significant amount of snow. It, it lingered pretty much all day, despite the fact that it rained so much. More than trace? You had like like accumulation of snow at your house? I mean, it wasn't an inch, but it was more than trace. For How sure. did it snow on the coast, but not here? It's very odd. Very unusual. Hmm. Uh, rain now back home to practice at Starfire, where they have replaced the Sounders as anchor tenants. Our UW softball, we mentioned this, a terrific start to the season for the Huskies in the Puerto Vallarta College Challenge. They run-ruled. That was another place you want to be. I could, I could do that, too. <laughs> I think I'm literally going to L.A. in like two weeks, then Austin like two weeks after that. But They run-ruled number 17 Nebraska 8 nothing in five innings in their season opener on Thursday with Ruby Malin getting the shutout. And Big Ten foe Nebraska. Future Big Ten foe. Glav supplying much of the offense with a home run and four RBI and her college debut on Friday. UW went toe-to-toe with number one Oklahoma, rallying from an early 2-0 deficit to take a 3-2 lead in the second. They maintained that through the sixth when the Sooners tied the game against Malin on in relief of Lindsey Lopez. And then uh, Malin was still in there when in extra innings, the Sooners got the winning run in the top Ugh. of the eighth. Huskies when they were won- down, did Oklahoma demand to take the game back to their home? <laughs> uh, the Huskies <laughs> they're, won- they're, like, they're like, it's my ball. I'm leaving. That's what Oklahoma does when they play. If they don't play a home game, it was it was so unusual for them to play outside the state of Oklahoma. The Huskies won their two other games, moved up four spots to number six in the rankings. Now tops among Pac-12 teams after UCLA went two and three last weekend. Wow, pathetic. Uh, this weekend, the Huskies are headed to the Shriners Children's Shriners Children's Clearwater Invitational, which I'm now. It's now occurring to me. I probably already started on Thursday and we have some results here that uh, I, I should have looked up Great. and put into the <laughs> I'd love to find notes. out about results live. Well, you know, it's going to be new to all of us. No, I guess they did not play. They play at 6.30 a.m. on Friday morning. So presumably by the time you listen to this. In what time will, zone? They're, they're on the East Coast. They will okay. have played. They play at 6.30 and 9.30 Pacific time on, on Friday. Uh, Facing number 18, Kentucky, and future Big Ten foe, Minnesota. They get another future Big Ten foe in Wisconsin Saturday at 7 a.m., followed by number 12, LSU, at 2 p.m., and then wrap up 6.30 a.m. on Sunday against North Carolina. That one's on the ACC network, everything else on ESPN+. Future Big Ten foe, North Carolina also. (laughs) That's going to be a longer for that period of time, I would say. (laughs) Utah women's basketball threatened upsetting Stanford for a second straight year on Friday, rallying from a late seven-point deficit to force overtime on a tying Lauren Schwartz three with 15 seconds left. They pulled within two with 30 seconds, six seconds left in the extra session, but the Cardinal offensive rebounded a Cameron Brink miss and got a second-chance score to seal a 63-59 win. But those good vibes were lost on Sunday when the Huskies fell victim to a season sweep by Cal going down 17-9 after one quarter falling short in a comeback attempt. That loss dropped the Huskies to 10th in the Pac-12 at 3-9 and and off the bracketology bubble entirely with Cal now the last of the four teams. The next four out. A very deep Pac-12, though. 
very deep, but you you probably can't make the you definitely can't make the NCAA tournament at three and nine in conference play, which oh is where the Huskies God. are now. So they badly need a sweep this weekend in Arizona. Uh, the Sun Devils got one of their two conference wins at Hecate earlier this season, while the Wildcats and our old friend Adia Barnes are one game ahead of the Huskies in the standings at four and eight. So a possibility, I mean, the both being on the road. If these two games were at home, you would say that they had a pretty good chance of winning both. But and yet they lost again to Arizona State at home, but they did beat Arizona as part of that weekend. Well, suddenly the bas- the Utah basketball team that's looking up is the men. Uh, <laughs> on last Thursday, they rallied from a deficit as large as 17 to get within two in the final minute of their loss at Oregon. Uh, Severe Wheeler had a turnover with the Huskies in possession down to Wilhelm Breidenbach missed a three that would have tied the game. But uh, on Saturday, the Huskies completed their season sweep of Oregon State in a 67-55 win, leading the entire game by as many as 20 points. And then earlier tonight, Thursday at home, beat Stanford 85-65 for their first back-to-back win since January 11th. Wow. Corinton Johnson came off the bench in that one to score a career-high 30 points, making six three-pointers. On Saturday, it's UW and Cal who come in tied in the Pac-12 standings at six and eight. So it's surprising for the Bears, despite because they went four and seven in non-conference. Uh, Huskies going for the sweep after winning 77-75 in Berkeley. NBA prospect Jalen Tyson had 17 points in that one, but the Huskies limited him to six of 18 shooting. A third consecutive win would tie UW's longest Pac-12 winning streak since under my starting- confidence. No, since starting the 2018-19 season, 10-0 in conference play. No, they didn't. That's that's a true fact. With Mike Hopkins as the coach? You can look it up. Who was on that team? Matisse Theibel, Jill and Noel. That is so wild. It's funny because I feel like I've retconned the entire, like, year. Like, to me, Theibel played only under Romar. (laughs) Well, you know, if you're going to do the whole Kaelin DeBoer only one with uh, I guess Jimmy Lake's recruits and Chris Peterson's recruits. Chris Peterson's recruits. <laughs> like it's complicated. <laughs> it's very it's, complicated. But the, but the like the Romar, Matisse, Thibel, Jalen, all these players. It's it's gets to sort of like why didn't Obama see nine eleven coming? Like that's what kind of territory you get into with it. But it is like to me, I just I will remember Matisse Thibel as he only played with Lorenzo Romar. Only bad things have happened under Mike Hopkins. Again, none of this is is factually accurate, but uh, I didn't again, say it was factually accurate. It's just vibes accurate. Yeah, but also everybody out there agrees. I should ask Jake one. <laughs> oh, I, in a scenario I, where Jake one is everybody, I am confident of that. Uh, so had they come back and beaten Oregon, I will say, it, that, like I watched most of the end of that game, and. I, I I was impressed with how they fought back. And it was one of those games that if it weren't Oregon, I would have been a little bit glib about it. But it was still like the loss to losing. I, again, I don't care about Oregon and basketball the same way I do in football. But like, had they had come back and Oregon cooed that game so incredibly, it would have been such an awesome win. And you have come up just short on that game. It really felt to me like that that was it. You know, we've had so many moments throughout the season. Like, we're so far past moral victories with this team and this roster. Like, if Mike Hopkins was a first-year head coach, and if the roster was extraordinarily young, it would be different. But it was just like, yeah, you you almost got there, but you didn't. And maybe that's kind of what it feels like the Huskies are doing this season overall. But would have been nice to have had three in a row. Yeah. 
So if they win this one on Saturday against Cal, what what are the remaining games? Are do how many are left after that? I mean, the the schedule is frankly quite favorable for the Huskies. Uh, Stanford was one of their granted it's at home, but one of their more challenging games remaining. Uh, they, you know, after the Cal game, they head to the Arizona schools next weekend. Then they're back home for the LA schools who are reeling and then they finish with the the return to the apple cup in pullman so they'll they'll probably be favored in four of their six remaining games and if they run the table if they win all six games i mean are they are they on the bubble at that point i don't know but things would feel very different because suddenly the talk would be about like Peaky at the right time, et cetera, that, you know, surely move into the top 50 in Ken Palm. So things would feel very different if they, they pulled that off, although they would not have a lot of quality Pac-12 wins. There's not, not that many quality Pac-12 wins to be had, period, but they wouldn't I have many of them. truly look forward to playing in the Big Ten where it's just like there will never be a time. There's just going to be enough teams in the Big Ten where it's like there will not be a year where it's like, yeah, there just isn't a good team. There just is not a single good team in the entire Big Ten. Or the West Coast Conference is better. Like I do look forward to playing in a conference like that. Um, what time is the Cal game on Saturday? That one is at 5 p.m. I wonder if I should go to that. I'm assuming the tickets are like a dollar. One would think. All right, I'm going to think about that. I'm going to give it an official. I'm going to think about it. Go ahead. We, could, we could have a live update from a UW men's basketball game for the first time all season. What do you mean? First, if you go. Neither of us have been a live update. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying we're going to be breaking in here. It's not going to be like the, you know, when you're listening to. Like this wasn't Randy's last taco time location. <laughs> it's not going to be like when we you're listening. toasted to Randy on New Day Northwest also. What the hell? Oh, that was on the notes. And somehow I, I think it was on the notes and then I skipped over it entirely. You were just like, actually, myself starting a cookie search is more important. No, I guess I forgot to put it on the notes. That's why You're it wasn't like, That's on there. enough glory for Randy. A little bit more glory to myself and my solo cookie search. Well, look, if if you made it to this portion of the podcast, you probably already know about Randy's segment. But uh, <laughs> on the unlikely search, event that you search didn't... for ESPN's Kevin, ESPN Kevin, ESPN's senior writer Kevin Belton's favorite cookie in Seattle. <laughs> In the unlikely event you didn't awesome for him everybody else there. is randy's alone on new day northwest you're doing a solo cookie search talking about visiting every taco time northwest location spreading the gospel of talking taco time i got a text and show you starting a podcast on around uh, <laughs> what's it gonna be i will see <laughs> Uh, you know, you might re review Wait, comedy be... specials chris's it's... review of netflix comedy specials and hbo comedy specials it's got to be Welcome to Totem Country, and you only interview Ty alums on the podcast. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. It's niche. Do you, do you know the sign, like the the giant sign that had like, you know, like you would put like messages on it or whatever? Chris is in possession of that sign. Wait, really? Yeah. How? Isn't that incredible? So they tore, they tore it down, right? All of Ty is being torn down and renovated. And Ryan Norris fellow Taiyi alum uh, is friends with the construction company that's doing the rebuild. He was like, can I have that sign? And they were like, sure, here you go. Gave it to him. Ryan's going to keep one side. The other side's going to be at Big John Nizzle's house. Incredible. Wow. 
Yeah. We are fixtures of this Thai high school community. And that's why you need to start your your podcast. <laughs> Welcome to Totem Country. <laughs> By the end, it'll just be like us interviewing people we happen to have gone to high school with. <laughs> Unfortunately, you're going to run through be the like, list of... It's Mikey again. <laughs> After I, I don't know if you guys can have the pull to get Adam Smith on, but uh, after you get Stacy Ross, Ross, it's going to be all downhill from there. <laughs> like we got we, Steve Pool, RIP. We've got Adam Smith, Green. No, probably not him. Um, <laughs> oh no, that's such a good joke. So. Um, Michael Sawyer, uh, you, you under your zero hour classes that you oh, took. Oh, okay. I didn't. Re- I didn't consider myself as a possibility. We, we will here. allow it because we are running low on guests already. <laughs> Uh, can you have on Les Carpenter because of the time that he came, came to talk at time? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who was that? Was that? Oh, because he was married to uh, my journalism, journalism teacher. teacher yeah. yeah, I forgot about that. That was your first foray into big journalism. It really was. Anyway. All right. Well, you don't football. Wait, I had one more time. You thought? I can't remember. <laughs> we mentioned this. The, the last two of the transfers for this period of time. Uh, a pair of brothers following Jed Fish from Arizona. Defensive lineman Isaiah Ward started 11 games as a redshirt freshman last season, recording four sacks, forcing a pair of fumbles. He's got three years of remaining eligibility. So, uh, you know, a, a big addition to the defensive line for the Huskies. Uh, his brother, line, older brother, linebacker Anthony Ward, saw his first career action on special teams last season, blocking a punt and returning it for a touchdown in Arizona's blowout win over Utah. He's got two years remaining eligibility. But notably, besides for being brothers, the family roots run strong to Seattle already as their uncle is Bobby Wagner, with whom what? they share an alma mater, that being Colony High in Ontario, California. Wow, there we go. So very uh, are, exciting to have the wards on, on board. Are you familiar with a company called Chef Steps? No. I mean, they have 274,000 followers on Instagram, including just a random group of people, uh, followed by both Treat Cookies and Lil Woody's and Big Waz, um, <laughs> founded by a Thai alum. <laughs> okay. Who we, so you, 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 you thought that was just like a random thing I was bringing up? I, I really didn't know what direction we were going with that one. Uh, yeah, Grant, Grant Curley, who we went to high school with. Okay. Nice. I was, yeah, it's not, he's not just a Thai alum. He's a Thai alum with us. So that's like extra points. Okay. Well, I look forward to the pod. Yeah. No, this is actually a great podcast for like, the, I love that we're getting even more micro. <laughs> we're, we're like, this podcast is aimed at people, not, not nationally like Taco Time, just the Northwest. I, this is only for think- people. I don't think taco, yeah, Northwest is taco time is what you're saying. And yeah, yeah you're zooming in smaller. Yeah, we're zooming in even smaller to just SeaTac. <laughs> well, not even all SeaTac. The Seattle <laughs> Christian listener, uh, not not being not not getting any value out of your podcast. I was wa- walking through the market the other day and there's like a chef steps, like I don't know, maybe they have like a classroom in the market or something and then i looked over and there he was i was like oh there's grant and you clearly didn't say hello he was like inside doing something oh, i see i wasn't gonna walk in there and be like hey haven't talked to you for 20 plus years did you also not go to the reunion hey i i'm i guess it is 20 plus years isn't it wow i've been thinking about starting a podcast actually 
Uh, well, maybe Stacy can help you get the word out if you have her on. Uh, I, that's that's the end of the notes. That's not the end of the notes. Well, it might be the end of the notes, but Husky football. <clears throat> so I listened to on the College Game Day pod with uh, oh. Chris Davis and Pete Thamel. Uh, Jed Fish was on there. Heard rave reviews about his appearance. From me? No. From multiple people? Third Pelton brother, Nate Taggart, among others. I love Jed Fish. This man, I am ready to to have him lead us into battle against Oregon. Like, Jed Fish, such a good, good speaker, but also just, like, the experience that he has and the places he's been and what he did at Arizona. To me, this is not even, like, the rationalizing portion. I, I think long-term, if you were to give me, objectively speaking, apples to apples, Kalen DeBoer, Jed Fish, there, there's a little part of me, and I, I'm saying this, it sounds like I am like saying this because of Kalen DeBoer leaving, but I remember watching Arizona win that bowl game and just being like, holy shit. Like, what Arizona built this last year was such a young roster. And I think that's kind of the thing that gets lost in the mix like he turned that team around but that was a very young team that Jed Fish turned around at Arizona and they were in a bad place before he got there it was an incredible feat and so he talked about kind of what we figured from the outside which was having all when they're recruiting having all of these people with NFL experience is going to be so so important to them and the other thing that came up literally they were like why do you why Washington? You know, what What about this job intrigued you? And we talked about this last summer. And do you want to know what the first point you brought up was? Uh, like, I, I mean, my assumption would be like the city of Seattle, but the connection with the Seahawks, I guess, is from where you're going? It is being part of the power two in the Big Ten. Oh, okay. L- literally trace it all the way back to that moment. And maybe thank you to Kalen DeBoer. All things yeah. considered, because the Huskies might not be in there if it's not for him. But right now he's talking about he's at a program with a lot of good young talent, not nowhere near the kind of money or whatever infrastructure at Arizona and being in the in the Big Ten. And that is going to be a point. It is going to be a huge, huge point for colleges that are in there, like exposure wise, when they are pitching to recruits, they are going to have so much luck. And the way that college football is now, everything is bubbling toward the top with the transfer portal, it is going to make his life a lot easier. So that was the number one piece that he brought up. They asked about his offense. He was like, I call plays everywhere I go. That's what I do. And I thought that was kind of exciting. Just the confidence that Jed Fish has in his system. And he was like, I run Sean McVay's offense. And I most recruits know who Sean McVay is and are familiar with the success that he had. You look at the Rams this past year. Pukunakua coming from out of nowhere to being superstar receiver instantly, right? Like if you were to talk about anybody who's the steal of the draft, it's easily Pukunakua. Sean McVay is a huge is a huge part of that. Also, Pukunakua having the UW roots, I think, is a big deal. But he was like Sean McVay could come to Husky practice and call seventy five percent of the plays. So it, it was interesting just how close he was talking about his offense being like. Sean McVay's offense. And we also talked about this when we talked on the Seahawks portion, which was Ryan Grubb. There's maybe debate about how much of an NFL offense it is that Ryan Grubb is running. There's no debate about whether Jed Fish is running an NFL style offense. 
Jed Fish literally is coming from the NFL, learned under all of these coaches and yep. running that offense. So I don't know. I'm so freaking hyped. And it might not, he even was like, they were like, what do you think about next year? And he was like, I got to learn these players. You know, it, it was one of those things where I feel like if, if you, he seems because people are so mad at him, people in Arizona are so mad at him, which is the one other point that I have to make. I don't even know if we need to acknowledge it, but like, he seems a little bit like, uh, 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 car salesman like from the outside and then you hear jed fish talk and you're like yeah like that's the answer that i want to hear which is he's like i don't know if we're gonna be good this next year i don't even know who these players are for the most part he's not gonna come in and be like yeah we're gonna go in there and win or whatever and i think i looked at the um project some sort of projections for the next season and uw was still like six in the big 10 and to me if after all of Everything that happened, if UW is six in the Big Ten next year, that is a, a great a, outcome. Excellent. It's it'd be the same with Kalen DeBoer. They would probably be in the exact same place considering all of the players. There is there's the elite teams at the top that have retooled and brought back basically everybody. Ohio State, Oregon, USC, Penn State, Michigan, teams like that. And then UW is right there, right after them. So considering that this is a rebuilding year for the most part for UW, if they can kind of hover in that place. I mean, if they can even be close to where Penn State is and hover around there and then occasionally with the with the playoff, make the playoff every three years or something like that, I think that is a great place to be for UW. So I was freaking hyped about it. They currently do have these six of the best title odds at ESPN bet among Big Ten teams. Maybe so. that was what I saw. Something It was something like that. I think it actually might have been the title odds. That but seems the reasonable. Other, the other piece was the this people talking about the UCLA job and it was just like if the only person on the face of the earth who heard that Jed Fish interviewed for the UCLA job just happened to be a reporter for the University of Arizona covering the University of Arizona I would be very surprised if that was the information and people treated it like it was real and it was not corroborated by any national source not a single national source and you look at what happened with UCLA after that with them hiring Deshaun Foster very quickly. It, it was not the kind of coaching search that the University of Washington had. And that, to me, was a program that is going to the Big Ten looking for a life draft, not going to the Big Ten in the same way that UW is going to the Big Ten. And it's funny to me that they would go cheap on the search because they're getting a full share right away. UW isn't getting that full share right away. So the place that UCLA football is at right now is definitely a sad place compared to where UW is and the search that they had. But the idea that Jed Fish would have accepted this job, moved all of these coaches and players across the country to Seattle, Washington, and then would be like, whoa, hold on, UCLA, with no indication that that job was going to open while Chip Kelly was interviewing for job after job after job. Jed Fish knew that job was going to open up, and he took the UW job. So it's fucking laughable that anybody would think that he was interviewing for the UCLA job or remotely interested in the UCLA job. I don't know if apples to apples, if it's a better job anyway, but in this very moment, it is definitely not a better job. So it was a fucking absurd thing for anybody to even fucking engage with. But then yet you did engage with it for the last few minutes here. I, what, here's what I have to say about the whole Jed Fish experience thus far. I look forward, I am hopeful that the Huskies do well enough under Jed Fish that everyone's angry when he leaves for a bigger job. That's that's my number one wish. Great. I mean, so, no, people, people weren't mad when Jim Harbaugh left. 
That's what we want. Is it, well, we want we want him okay. to do well enough that he can leave, and we'd be like, "There's a there's a better tier. You're not even mad when they leave. That's the best tier." I mean, also leaving so, for the NFL is different than leaving for another college job. I would say. And Jed Fish couldn't coach in the NFL. Like, I I don't think it's as likely. If, if I don't anybody think... is successful, if Jed Fish is as successful at college as. Kalen DeBoer was, he's more likely to get an NFL job because he's coached in the NFL. He's I, a much I agree more with that. likely he's NFL not as likely to get anybody as, else. He's not as likely an NFL coach as Jim Harbaugh, who had coached in a fucking sure, Super Bowl yes. and Just, played for many years in the NFL. <laughs> Jim Harbaugh is an extreme outlier. Uh, uh, but but the other thing he talked about in that podcast was persistence, and that to me, when you're when you are getting recruits, when your job is going out and getting something, he's talking about leaving a note on Steve Spurrier's like car for 370 straight days or whatever. Like Jed Fish is a persistent motherfucker. And it seems to me like trying to go out and get players, I think he will outwork almost everybody else. And that's how you get players like Noah Fafita, like Tedaroa McMillan to the University of Arizona and the next generation of those players to the University of Washington when given the assets of a Carroll and a Belichick on your staff and being in the Big Ten like, I don't know. I think UW long-term is in a very, very nice place right now. I agree. Well, I look, nothing says persistent like continuing to record this podcast. Over <laughs> 370 episodes and counting. <sighs> On that note, sir. Thanks for thanks. listening. Thanks. Yep. We still haven't gotten it down. 400 plus episodes. Later. <laughs> you teed it up and then you didn't. <laughs>